three, two, one. Here we are at Wood Unleashed 54. And we have got four hours on YouTube tonight. It's not a Patreon section. Four hours. We're going to be going from 6 p.m. UK to 10 p.m. The main themes. Savile. Musk. And now we've just added the guy who's going viral all over Twitter. Johnny Depp. Let me pull up the Johnny Depp story. Where the hell is it? There we go. What is happening? Have you, have you, seen, have you not seen the Johnny Depp news? No, Ash was going on about it. And he said, do not turn up without knowing about the Johnny Depp news. So what is it? <laughs> right, I'm just pulling it up. Hold on. Johnny Depp news. He's in trial right now, isn't he? Over. Yes. So uh, the, the headline, Johnny Depp gets emotional as his sister testifies how their abusive mother taunted him with cruel nickname One Eye and tells her Amber Heard called him an old fat man when Dior offered him a modelling gig. So his sister Christy took the stand in the defamation trial to describe their troubled childhood. She testified for her brother and told the jury about the upbringing in Kentucky by his high-strung mum, Betty Sue Palmer, and peaceful dad, John Christopher Depp. Father was a kind, patient, loving, gentle man. Our mum was the opposite. Very high-strung, very nervous, anxious, angry. Johnny Depp at times looked at the floor as his sister spoke. He appeared to be deeply moved as she recounted their childhood together. Asked what Heard would say about Depp's physical appearance. Dombrowski said she would call him an old, fat man. You just called wow. me something similar before we started, Sean. <laughs> Um, it's weird. It's weird with these things, isn't it? How much um, gets brought into the public, atten- to the public attention? Because you're talking about something that should be private between two individuals. There was recently. It was about six months ago. Do you remember? It was that actor. Oh, you won't know the actor, but there was an actor, the guy who was in Wimbledon. I forgot his name. Uh, British guy, and he had, had exchanged some texts with Johnny Depp, where he jokingly said things like, "Oh, you should burn the witch." About about. Oh Amber my goodness. Hurt. Yeah, but. That's the kind of thing that people say among friends. And then he then had to have that published to the world, what he had said. And I thought, that's not really fair. You spoke, you're private, supposed to be private. Everything it? comes out when you go to court. And his sister was asked if there was an occasion when Amber Heard was not nice to Johnny. She said there was one that had really stayed with her. <laughs> they were at Depp's office and Christian Dior had called saying they were interested in working with Depp. She said, Johnny told Amber they were interested in him. Her reaction to that was she was in disbelief and disgust because she, she said, Dior, why would Dior want to do business with you? They're about class and style and you don't have style. It was insulting, kind of taking away that one moment that it was. I've seen the insults multiple times, actually. Asked what she said, would say about his appearance, she would describe him as an old fat man. Wow, a lot of, lot of uh, slinging of mud there. Yeah. In the in the uh, courtroom today with Johnny Depp going on right now, it's trending on Twitter. But let me just give you the lineup because we're about to bring our next, our first guest of the night in. He's one of my all-time favourites, Jason Horsley, and his book is The Vice of Kings: How Socialism, Occultism, and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse in 2019. So he's going to be talking about the secret culture of Savile's criminal life in the context with the teachings of Alistair Crowley. Hmm. From 6.30, Gloria Masters is a speaker who suffered horrendous abuse. I've just been reading the eight pages that were sent over, and oh my God. 
I cannot believe what we're gonna. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's it's. It probably needs a disclaimer actually. If um, it's going to be extremely harrowing, so be prepared that you're up for that if you want to watch that one. Seven thirty to eight. Jacob Helberg, senior advisor at Stanford University Center on Geopolitics and Technology. His book is Wires of War: Technology and the Global Struggle for Power, discussing cyber warfare impacting current Ukraine-Russia conflict. Eight to nine, Charlie Robinson's coming on to talk about Musk, the NWO, the technological industrial complex. I'll ask him for his thoughts on Johnny Depp as well. Norman Baker at nine to nine forty, talking about Savile, the Netflix documentary, Boris Johnson, and then finally Mr. Orange from the US-Mexico border. So that is the lineup. And I'm going to hand Jason over to Andrew, and I'll be back in 30 minutes. All right. I'll see friend. you in a bit, Cheers. mate. Yep. Oh, hang on. Well, J- Jason's just left for a second, I think. <clears throat> so I'm not going to pop him pop him up yet. Oh, I'm back. back. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and you've, you've watched the Savile Doc, haven't you, yourself? Yeah, I have, unfortunately, because it doesn't make for nice watching. What do you think about him crossing out. What do you think about him crossing his fingers? Uh, the corpse, oh, yeah. Well, his fingers crossed? How scary is that? It makes you think about about death. Like I was saying to you before, wasn't I? That you know, you, you sort of you think about death as something that's gonna just suddenly happen and you're gone. But with the crossing his fingers, that was really like, oh my god, he was he knew. And I wonder, does everyone know? And I don't want to know. It really stood out to me. That. All right, let's bring Jason. In. He's gonna Ooh. pick up pick up with uh, Jimmy Savile. All right. Oh. Hello, Jason. Welcome to the show. How you doing? Oh, can you right, can you see me okay and hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. How, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, but I'm noticing the connection's quite slow at my end, so hopefully uh, it's not going to scramble our conversation too much. Oh, golly. I hope there's no scrambling going on. At the moment, I can hear and see you fine, though. Okay, good. Yeah, good. so tell me, um, you know, so... Give me a little bit, just before we go into Savo, a little bit about your background and your book, you know, just for the listeners who, who might not know of you. Sure. Well, my, the reason I was drawn to Jimmy Savo was, uh, well, two reasons. One, I'm from Yorkshire, so I grew up very close to that environment. My family also was a quite a high-power entrepreneurial family that had some tenuous connections to Jimmy Savo. But... Uh, the main reason or the primary reason was that I've spent many years researching uh, organized child sexual abuse and social engineering and cultural engineering and those things. So when it came up about Jimmy Savile, I was actually, I was quite reluctant to go in there for personal reasons, but in the end I couldn't avoid it. And I began an exploration of my past, starting with my grandfather, who was a member of the Fabian Society in Yorkshire. Am I still coming through okay? <clears throat> yes, what is what is the Fabian Society? Uh, well, the Fabian Society was the, the, the power behind the Labour Party. It was basically the creative uh, force behind the Labour Party. There was a society, semi-secret society, that was started in the late 1800s. And it was all about social reform and sexual liberation in a nutshell. And uh, I mean, their influence is mostly hidden, but 
very easy to to uncover. I mean, they're, they're not really a secret society. Sure. Okay. And and can I just ask when? So when was this? You first started getting interested in Savile's case. Was it? Was he still around at that point? No, it was just after he died. It was just after he died when it started coming out. And to be honest, I can't even remember how much I'd already heard about Savile's, uh, you know, dark hidden side by that point, or if I had even heard about it. It all feels as though we all knew all along now, of course, but yeah. but we didn't. Mm, okay. And so you got inv- you got involved in looking into him, and there's a lot that apparently is not mentioned in the Jimmy Savile two-part documentary on Netflix. So, I mean, where should we start? I mean, his beginnings in the 1940s dance club scene sounds like that might be a good place to, to begin. That, that's pretty much where I started, uh, not with my research, because obviously it took a while to find my way back to that, but when I was actually sharing the researches and putting it in chronological order, uh, that's that's as close as we can get to Jimmy Savile's beginnings. Uh, one of the main sources is Jimmy Savile himself. Admittedly, he was uh, he might have been inclined to toot his own horn, but I don't think he made it up whole cloth that he was the first DJ, the first <clears throat> well, at least the first DJ to get two turntables side by side. Uh, that he uh, invented that method, and um, what what I what I um, connected him to in Vice of Kings, which is the, the first part of Vice of Kings, is the exploration of the Fabian Society Social Engineering in Britain with Jimmy Savile as a sort of microchipped eel that I just keep seeing what was he up to at certain times to see the ways in which he might or might not have been involved in this stuff. Was that, yeah, the early dance halls was in the, uh, that was in the early 40s um, and the period of World War Two. And it was a combination of, of two things, really. The mass observation, which is a very little-known uh, program for, for covert surveillance of society, ostensibly in order to promote democracy or find out how to better apply de- democracy. But the Fabian symbol is a wolf in sheep's clothing, so this is an example of that. And mass observation was, was uh, dedicated to observing the working class in their own environment. Uh, in order to better get a handle on them, let's say, and mm-hmm. one of the and and this it began it began in the late thirties, but I think it was partly or maybe even largely a reaction to the general strike in nineteen twenty six, which was the year Jimmy Savile was born, coincidentally, which is when the whole uh, the gears of British society ground to a halt because the working class were unified in striking. And so I think there was a there was definitely a conscious attempt. Let's avoid that by the ruling class. Uh, so that would have been one of the motivating factors. But anyway, the, the mass observation was set up in the late thirties, and it involved, uh, as I say, observing the working classes in their own environment. But then also, I think it's connected to creating environments in which it would be more possible to observe the the general population and so this was when the dance halls came in i'm not saying exclusively for that reason but it was related uh, as well as the creation of um patriotic songs that would help uh, the war effort that would help inspire people to sign up for the war so propaganda essentially through through dance tunes i mean this is this is public knowledge nothing secret about it um but it, it very clearly converges with the creation of the dance halls and this was Jimmy Savile was 
was in his late teens when this was gearing out in the middle of World War II. And then 1947, that's when he claimed that he really began DJing when he was 21. And he's also referred to, kind of hinted at, but there's definitely a, a, a lot of smoke there enough to, to deduce a fire to his connections with the, the British underworld. I mean, London underworld, who's connected to the Cray twins in the 50s and the 60s, uh, but also to the Glasgow underworld. He's referred to that specifically. And his connections to Ian Brady, who's with Moira Hindley, that was much later in the 70s. But according to what I was able to discover, that went back to the early days of Jimmy Savile before he was well known. So it seems as though two things, his, uh, in his early days before he was known, and he had a very different look then, he looked like more or less a regular guy, uh, he was involved in the, the underworld, the criminal underworld, and this is much more speculative, but I think it's reasonable to speculate, with intelligence operations such as mass observation, which uh, revolved around what I've just described using the, the dance club scene, which in terms of crime was obvious connection there with drugs and prostitution, but then in terms of intelligence gathering, whether Jimmy Savile was, uh, at what point he was recruited, that's my theory, by intelligence services, uh, is uh, one can only speculate, but he was in the right place at the right time. The, it's, it's reasonable, even necessary to deduce that based on what came out in the substitute, well, what came out in 2012, but what we know he was up to in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So, 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 yeah, none of that was in the Netflix documentary, mm, not even mm, a, a whiff of that. And do, do you think there's a reason for that? Do you think they're trying to hide this this background, especially the t intelligence service trying to protect themselves a little bit, or was it just a case of you know, there's only so much time in a documentary, there's only so much space? Uh, well, there is, but of course they, they could have had made more time. I mean, there was no doubt uh, financial commercial reasons why they only had two and a half hours or three hours dedicated to that, but it could have just as easily been a six-hour, a six-part series. Maybe they were assuming there wasn't enough interest, I mean, just at the financial level. Uh, but you know that something like that, or I know, anyway, it gets, um, it has to be, uh, okayed at various different levels so uh it's a bit of a chicken i'm not a chicken or an egg but uh rose by any other name one could say there's conscious conspiracy and complicity to conceal the truth and create a, a narrative that is acceptable and isn't going to uh you know ruffle any of the more powerful feathers but it's also commercial interests i mean it's just a sort of instinct within the organization like Netflix about what they can get away with. Uh, I mean, it's not good commercial uh, policy to, to make products that's going to upset people too much. So, I mean, you can look at that from a purely financial angle and, and it, it would account for it, but clearly there's more to it than meets the eye because that's the whole point of what we're talking about. I mean, Jimmy Savile was an entertainer. He, he made his name in the entertainment industry. And of all the institutions, which uh, I don't know if any of them were named per se, well, the BBC must have been, that enabled him, uh, the entertainment in industry was, was his primary enabler. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, less, 
less overtly and less and almost unacknowledged in the documentary besides the BBC was the NHS, MI5, MI6 uh, and um, the police mm. and the royal family while well, they were in there too. But um, pretty much the, some of the major, if not the major British institutions were um, mm. facilitating Jimmy Savile's predation. So, I mean, my premise in Vice of Kings is it wasn't just that they were looking the other way, but that he was uh, part of a much, much larger agenda, which is possible to, as what Vice of Kings attempts to do, to create the deep background context for Jimmy Savile and to make coherent what it was discovered he was involved in so that it isn't just a case of this crazy... Uh, loose cannon who got away with terrible things for 50 years because the system is corrupt, but rather to do with a covert socio-cultural agenda that had many, many players and many, many institutions. The Tavistock is the most well-known in conspiracy circles, and he was simply one of the one of the most visible tentacles of that op- octopus. Mm. And, and is it a suggestion that the intelligence service uh, and, and also um, the underground world, the underworld, you know, were, were all of these people aware of his inclinations, of his, you know, what he was doing to children, for example? Yeah, well, that's very much the point. It's not, it's not about being aware. It's not merely being aware of and looking the other way. It's that uh, that was his primary function and purpose was uh, as part of a larger institutionalised form of child sexual abuse, which wasn't merely about, or isn't, because it's still going on, isn't merely about gratifying the sexual depravities of deranged individuals. There's there's an actual purpose to it in terms of sociocultural engineering, which is enormously complex, but... Uh, I mean, I, I actually made some notes before today because I know I knew that we would only have half an hour, like how to sum all of this up. Um, I mean, a lot of this is dates and names and things in case, you know, in case I had time for that. For But the, um, the, the main thing that I would try and describe or map with a few bullet points is this consistent agenda from... I mean, actually, I date it from when Jimmy Savile was born uh, because it was so soon after that. I've got the, the London School of Economics and the Commonwealth Fund, which was Rockefeller-backed. Uh, they began training psych- psychiatric social workers for child guidance. So that was in 1926. And they specifically targeted mental defectives. And the year after that child guidance clinic was created in, in Islington, which later became the Tavistock Institute or Tavistock Clinic. But see, now in Islington in the 90s, it came out that Islington was a hotbed for childcare homes that were residential and where the children were not only being sexually abused, they were being transported by taxi. They were called Jimmy taxis to different the homes of different, we could say pedophiles, but child predators, uh, and that, so that was, that was a business, but uh, it was also more than a business because it was part of this larger um, program of um, not just exploiting children, but using them for experimentation purposes. So then something like Broadmoor becomes a real flashpoint because how did Jimmy Savile and why did Jimmy Savile have access to Broadmoor for uh 
whatever it was, 40 years or so, David Owen gave him the keys, where he could sexually abuse all of those girls. Well, if Broadmoor, it seems like to me, Broadmoor was a front, maybe many of the hospitals were fronts that Jimmy Savile predated in for these kind of uh, psychological experimentation using children uh, as victims uh, to, to, you know, do these things to them and then observe the effects. I mean, this was, it was somewhat open. I'm just looking at my notes again here, but um, the uh, John Bowlby in the Tavistock Clinic uh, in 1946 that started with the uh, child department and they were with John Bowlby and they were specifically studying the effects of separation on children. So that's just a fairly mainstream example. How do you study the effects of separation from, on children? You separate them, right? for example. So if you want to study certain things about psychology, um, then you need you need guinea pigs and children are the natural guinea pigs and if you don't just want to wait for the right circumstances to observe you inflict the circumstances on the children uh, and the last thing i'll say before i take a breath is that um it's not merely about it wasn't merely about experimentation uh, there's always a blurry line between practical and experimental but shaping the child's psyche to 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 develop the adult to control the way in which adults were developed. So then these mm. cases would be observed over, over decades. And uh, sexually abusing children, uh, human beings in their formative stages is, as far as I've seen, the most uh, certain way to, sh to shape them psychologically and therefore make them easy to predict and control as adults. Wow. These are quite some allegations. Who, who might we hold responsible accountable if if these experiments on children were going on and they're just inviting Savile around to have his way with them I mean who where does the buck stop exactly where does the buck stop I mean but and so yeah I was mentioning it merely as an example that what people can immediately yeah. recognize um uh but yeah as far as institutions I mean it, it it is known and even acknowledged briefly in the Netflix documentary that the different various different police departments receive complaints about Jimmy Savile, uh, certainly enough to conduct an investigation, but either they didn't or the investigation went far enough for it to then get stopped at a higher level. So, uh, so, so yeah, who, who holds the police accountable? Well, it has to be the MI5 or it has to be, um, uh, governmental authorities, but then you find the governmental authorities are also are the very that those are the very higher up levels. I mean, this is this is shown in Line of Duty in the TV show that probably many of Sean's listeners watch. Uh, it's not exactly a whistleblowing show, but it does refer to Jimmy Savile and these kinds of rings of child abuse, and it, it and it clearly indicates that every step of the way. Once they get too close to the truth, somebody at a higher level comes in to stop it. I mean, of course, it's simplified for a TV show, uh, but nonetheless, I'd say that's a fairly accurate representation mm. of of how so the you, pyramid of power keeps uh, everybody underneath it. You would allege then that you know MI five were involved, MI six, the NHS, the BBC, all these people were involved to to allow Savile to uh, you know abuse children often in the name of experimentation and often in just, just, just to let him, because he was a powerful guy, let him do it. Uh, yeah, 
um, I was going to say that uh, I think I mean what I what what the the main objective here with Vice of Kings is to turn it upside down, realize that it's like Alice in Wonderland, day is night and night is day. So it's not, we get confused if we start to think, how could all these people be involved and how could all these organizations be possibly, uh, but um, the way I see it is actually, it's kind of the other way around. It says that many of these organizations were created initially for the purpose that we later say that they're concealing or that somehow, how did those rotten apples get in? But actually, so say with Broadmoor as a, a more smaller example, you create a, a location or you use a location for the experimentation slash abuse of children, and then you disguise it as a mental hospital for helping you know, wayward or lost young girls, right? So then it, so, so then when we look at it and we think, how on earth could all those people have got corrupted or how could they look the other way? How could this happen? Well, it, it was never the thing that it was pretending to be in the first place. So the question, it's the wrong question. The question is, how could we have let ourselves be fooled? How could we be so naive about the institutions and the, of power? Uh, and that that's a reasonable question, but the answer is also in the evidence is that, that we're we're all victims of this organized malevolence of this organized child abuse to one degree or another now I mentioned in the in the talking points this idea that Jimmy Savile was the most influential British human being in history, and uh, that's a reference to the way in which um well, first of all, how abusing children has a massive influence on the society for obvious reasons and reasons I've just I've touched on today, but also in ways I haven't. So if Savile was abusing hundreds and I would say thousands of children in his lifetime and probably it's probably an unimaginable number, um, not only are all those children permanently um, traumatized by that and so their behaviors are, are compromised, but their own children and then all the people they interact with. So that's a massive web of influence, influence if you think about it, just that one man could have through being a sexual predator. But then if you add to that the fact that he was a, this cultural pioneer who, um, you know, I grew up watching Jim will fix it and Top of the Pop. So that shaped my psyche and that shaped my values, that instilled me with values and desires and dreams and aspirations. Uh, so, so that's a massive kind of blanket influence. And it, the bottom line point I was making is it, it severely compromises our ability to recognize malevolence and corruption uh, when, when we see it because we're victims of it. And we've, we've been, well, it's in the documentary, we've been groomed, we've been manipulated uh, and um, hypnotized and to whatever degree actually traumatized as well to be complicit with it, to, to uh, not just to look the other way, but even when we're looking to not recognize what we're seeing. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I, I understand your question. If we had more than half an hour, we could really go into it. Um, but uh, the, the bottom line, my view is, yeah. is, is that we're, we may as well be in the matrix in terms of our ability to, to recognize reality we're in uh you know charlie's chocolate factory we're in the car catcher's cage surrounded by a number of different things that capture our attention yeah. or particularly because of the ways we've been traumatized to to look to the culture that's 
that is covertly traumatizing us and as Jimmy Savile being the flashpoint example of for the relief from the trauma so it's a bit like the medical establishment it it poisons us with various different things and then it offers cures that are more poisonous than the disease and we just gotcha. keep coming back and in the end yeah, I mean, Jason, this kind of thing, by the way, we can go on for another uh, five, ten minutes, I'm told, actually. But this kind of thing, I would have found this completely not believable, not credible, only a few years ago. And then <clears throat> I looked into a lot of this stuff in Germany. I was looking into a similar kind of thing. And they did this thing. The state got involved in Berlin where they had they had two big problems in Berlin. They had um, a homeless children problem, too many children homeless on the streets, you know, with the whole Soviet thing going on. And they had you know, these child sex abusers, they didn't know what to do with them. And they decided, the state decided, the best way to solve this issue was to put them together. So they rehoused homeless children and put them with known pedophiles in, in, in Berlin. And looking at that, I now think, well, everything you're telling me in the UK sounds very reasonable and possible. Let me, let me ask you this, um, you know, how do we stop this kind of thing happening going forward? I mean, you look at like the, you know, Savile was having police lunches and things like that. Uh, how, how do we prevent it happening again? Well, I think the only way, and I mean, because this is inseparable from why people stay in the dark, why people don't really want to see and why as i said a netflix documentary is not going to reveal the truth to people because partly because people even don't want to see the truth so it would be bad commercial acumen to, to try and rub their noses in it so if you think of uh you know parents who who with their children they don't dare to send them to to care homes they don't dare to send them to schools they don't dare to send them to hospitals or leave them unattended the, the more they find out about the way the system is, the less uh, confident the parent's going to be uh, in trusting any of these institutions. And, and so there's this complicity to actually look the other way because the alternative, which is what I'm getting to, the, the only really alternative is to, is to abandon society completely. Take your kids out of schools, take them out of the hospitals, take them out of the care, take them out of society, take them off their smartphones and their computers and, and go back to nature, go back to the land. Uh, I don't really see how 8 billion people can do that, but I don't think 8 billion people are going to want to do that. I think most of these billions are signing up cities and for the the microchip and all the rest of it. So we're heading for so the kind of society that Jimmy Savile is just one of many instrumental agents in creating a, a traumatized human society in which we're, we've, we've volunteered to become insensate, to become batteries in a, a huge uh, artificial superorganism. Uh, that's the way that I see society going and very, very fast. So my own policy, and I don't have children, but my own policy has been to leave society incrementally and to get back to the land. I think that to try and change society and to try and reconfigure it in a way to prevent these things from happening again, which is the wrong language because they, they haven't stopped happening they are just the nature. It's like if you're a fish swimming in toxic ocean, the toxins are everywhere. You can't start trying to separate the toxins from the ocean. You just have to get out of the ocean and find a clean pond. That That's the only option. So I think that to try and change the system from within, uh, that that's very central to the way it traps even those of us who are becoming more conscious of it, this desire. Somehow we can fix it. But this to me is why it's necessary or useful to trace back 
the malevolence, the, the, the organization of malevolence. There are figures that I name in my book, such as Bertrand Russell. I mean, figures that are just huge cultural influences that are seen as benign and humanitarian. Um, they're pillars of our society, and they are as rotten as the society that they're holding up, uh, because mm. this has been planned in you know, for, for maybe centuries, but certainly a, a couple of hundred years we can trace back the the plans to create the society we now have in and uh, organized child abuse is central to it incredible as that sounds therefore i say you you have to throw out the baby with the bathwater if there's i mean there's no way to save the baby except by throwing out the bathwater so if the baby dies well it was going to die anyway um so yeah it's just off with all their heads, so to speak, not literally, but I mean, our own idols, our icons, our heroes, our values, they're all falsely incepted, and just as if we were in a, a false reality, uh, they've all come from outside of us. And and so my prerogative is uh, getting back to nature, number one, and then number two, which is really number one, but we have to start with, with the physical, what we know is sa saving the soul, which I know is a Christian terminology, and I'm not uh, ostensibly Christian, but the soul is a reality. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. And the soul potentially is an eternal aspect of ourselves, which if, if that goes to hell in a way that it can't get out, that's a serious problem, as opposed to all these other things that are social. Hmm. <clears throat> Um, oh, have I paused or has he? I think it might be him, actually. That's a shame. Oh, no, it's all frozen. Um, and unless we get him back in the next few seconds, it might do for Sean to come back in and... and, and, and uh, okay, I'm fine, Ash tells me, so I'm here. Um, well, I've got your attention, don't I? There's not much I can tell you because Jason was explaining it all so brilliantly. The one thing I was going to ask him next was, and he was not probably going to agree with this, was whether we have some reason to feel a little bit optimistic about the future. I know we like to be all doom and gloom, but I know that, you know, over decades past, we didn't even have the P word. People just said, what did they say? Like naughty, old, dirty old men, things like that. Nowadays, people are a little bit more aware. I'm not, I don't deny that these sort of horrible things do go on still. Um, but we caught that man whose name I shouldn't say, J-E, <laughs> the initials. Um, that stuff still goes on, but at least we are a little bit more aware. The Me Too movement came and, you know, changed things a little bit. So um, Ash is saying Sean is coming in in a second. So I don't know. I think things are a little different, and I'd like to think that we couldn't... Um, that that kind of thing couldn't go on to that extent. But maybe I'm naive. Maybe it still is now. I, I'd like to think that Savo, I mean, the reason we do these huge documentaries about him and talk about him so much is because he was such an outlier or such a huge name and such an unlikely and, well, at the time it seemed unlikely. And when you watch it back, you're like, how didn't they know? Bloody hell. But, you know, again, I might be being naive here and they'll show this clip in a year when about 10 more celebrities are uh, found out for being involved in these kinds of hidden cults and things but still that was very very interesting from jason um i was fascinated and i know a lot of people in the it's bigger than ever before nosferatu says well maybe it is i don't know well i'm not involved in it but we didn't cancel him He's, he had bad internet <laughs> we didn't hello cancel hey oh. oh you've just gone you've just gone did your microphone pop out 
Is the wire pop? Is the wire popped out of your microphone? How's that? Oh, that's better. Yeah, yeah. Excellent work, man. That was absolutely fascinating. Jason has just got a wealth of knowledge on that subject, and absolutely mind blowing. I'm just looking at the chat. The chat's been really lively. If people do want to join the chat, we did get hacked. There was a hack attack at lunchtime. So to join the chat, we've set it whereby you have to be a subscriber to the channel, and then you've got to wait one minute. So if you are watching and you're not subscribed to the channel and you do want to join the chat, please subscribe to the channel and you will be allowed to join the chat within one minute. Mm -hmm. Also, all of Jason's links will be in the description box below this video. He's a fascinating character. He's yep. got a, a oeuvre of books that you could check out if you want to get really deep into his work. Yep. And uh, whatever website or socials will be down there as well. So thank, thanks for that, Andrew. That was excellent. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Um, if I could just shout out my channel, because quite a lot of people in here. On the Edge of Andrew Gold, come check it out. Got a big live tomorrow with Lloyd Evans, former Jehovah's Witness. It's all kicking off. Jason's back in. To, to, um, we, yeah, go on, Sean. Hey, Jason, can you hear me? Can you hear yeah, me, I can. Sorry yeah, about we're that. Just, we're just, it's all right. We're just moving over to the next guest. Are you okay just to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you and get your books? Yeah, yeah. Too bad I got cut off when I was giving my soul talk. Oh, we'll get you back. <laughs> we'll get you back if you're up for it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks anyway for the opportunity. Thanks for coming on. Do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you online or, or get your books? It's jamming up again. I don't know All if right. you can hear me. Yeah, let's, oh. we're going to have to move on. All right, Jason, okay. we're going to have to move on. <clears throat> Let's get right. the next guest up. You, cool. I'm going to bounce you I'll off first. You... Yeah, do you know what, what, when, when do you want me back in? So you can sort Ash, and I'm going to move on to the next I'll guest. Ash. All, right, All right, mate. Cheers. Have a good one. All right, cheers. All right, let's um, move on to Gloria Masters. Hey, Gloria, thank you very much for coming on. How's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. It's uh, 5.30 a.m. here in... Wonderful New Zealand. Oh, my goodness. Well, we really appreciate you getting up and spending time with us. And this is just such an important story for people to hear. Just a, a quick disclaimer, um, you know, because of YouTube community guidelines and stuff like that. If you uh, are not, if you are averse to hearing a harrowing story of things that have happened to Gloria as a child, then perhaps this is not for you. Uh, otherwise, you know, be prepared it, 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 it's a very important story but it's going to get dark and um there's going to be some graphic content so that's that's my disclaimer out of the way i've, I've gone over these eight pages that you've sent to me gloria um, we salute you and it's really brave what you're doing can can you just tell the viewers a little bit about you you know and uh, and how your life started yeah, thanks. Hey, thanks for hosting me, Sean. Really appreciate it. Um, welcome to your viewers. So, look, I um, I was born into a family uh, where child sex transporting was um, was kind of considered the norm. So, for the first sixteen years of my life, I was um, trained and conditioned by my abusers, uh, predominantly my father. Uh, antithesis of what that actually means for all the wonderful dads out there um, to 
to actually perform in many varying ways and through many different um, venues. So, you know, I was leased to gangs. I was um, performing in a strip club up in our red light district in Auckland. Um, I was um, transported to various working men's clubs throughout New Zealand and the North Island. Um, I had forced abortions on me I, as a result of what I went through. Um, oh, to be honest, Sean, just really grateful I made it through. Yeah. And uh, decades and decades of therapy, which is why the, he- the hair's white, and um, now ready to give back. Gloria, what was your life like before all of this started to happen? This was my life. What, what, what's From the time ve- I was born up until I was 16 years of age, yeah. What are your first memories then? So uh, one of my first memories was of being a small child, uh, probably about three years of age, and um, I'm sure the UK had them as well, Sean, but being locked into or put into an apple crate, um, the old-fashioned apple crates, and uh, having another one nailed down on top of me and being left in there for hours for some um, some misdemeanour or other. Um, so that was as a small child. Um, I was first um, raped. Am I allowed to say that word on the show? So, so let, let's say assaulted. Um Oh, okay. At, 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 this, at this point in, in time of your story, whose care were you under? Was this your natural parents that you were under the yeah, care of them? Yeah. Yeah. So my father, but these are my biological parents. My father was my key abuser and um, fed into some very big um, pedophile rings in New Zealand at the time. So we're going back to the 1960s, early 70s. Okay, I've also got the, I've, I've got a restriction on me by the uh, the police in in the UK now, whereby they've required me oh. to ask all guests who've got stories of this nature to confirm that they waive the anonymity because of the nature of yes. this. You you do yeah. waive your anonymity, Gloria. Okay. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. And oh, look, I've yeah. written a book about this. Um, really to to kind of shine the light on this, which is huge in our country and across the world as we as we know. Um, it's what I call the silent endemic and really we, we need to start exposing this and have more conversations. Definitely. So we can ha- so we can help our fellow survivors out there, you know. Definitely. There's a lot of us out there, Sean. So so all right, so you, you you've kinda of like, you know, when usually when we interview people, it, it starts out with a telling them you know, a bit of the background and stuff, but your yeah. earliest memories are these horrific abuse. So just to set yeah. the stage a bit more then, could you perhaps uh, describe about your parents, who they were, what kind of jobs they had, how they met, just so people could get a greater understanding of how this came together? Certainly. Uh, so, uh, A, I believe it was generational because my father's um, mother and one of his sisters were tasked with uh, teaching me the art of seduction. So that is a six-year-old when I first started being sexually transported out to um, 
two people, they I knew what I was doing. So there was a commission money-based um, transaction that went on for my grandmother and my auntie at the time. Um, so that was quite devastating to me uh, because that auntie was one of my favourites. Um, my father was a plumber back in the day, um, average working men class. This was the era where men went out to work and women stayed at home with children. My mother did not seem to um, like me very much or, or indeed welcome being a mum. And I think at that time it was really hard because, you know, big Catholic family and not a lot of support. Uh, but nevertheless, if you think of classic narcissist um, and my father, I would consider to be a psychopath, actually. Um, then, yeah, there there is the environment, if you like, where um, neglect and abandonment find a home. Uh, abuse is always present. So, what about siblings? Yes. So my, um, I I was the youngest girl. My siblings would rather this never saw the light of day do not uh, agree with my telling of the story, uh, did not suffer what I did because at the age of 11, my parents decided to separate and I was left in the house with my father for 18 months and that was without a doubt the very worst time of my life and the abuse that I suffered. Mm. All right. So, so, yep. so um, picking up where we left off, then you said your earliest yes. memories were of these things happening, and you were born yeah. into a family of transporters, and yes. it, it just progressively got worse. Yes, yeah. I, I think the most scary time or times for me were being leased to gangs uh, over weekends and for specific events. Um, so. <clears throat> Being a young, um, underweight child and deliberately uh, kept underweight, so food was a very big luxury for me growing up. Um, it was, yeah, fairly pretty frightening and traumatic. Um, and, you know, uh, as a, again, just grateful to have made it through, but also highlighting that, that this does go on in New Zealand this has not uh, changed in New Zealand and um, we have people alongside the UK and America where this is known to be going on and nothing really changes. So I'm okay. one of the people who wants to shed light on this. What were the nature of these gangs and how did that come about? Well, um, because my father was involved in uh, several abuser rings, I can't say the actual term, um, because of that, uh, it meant he met a great deal of people. So uh, when one of the gangs who was connected with one of the clubs in New Zealand um, came in, he was able to say, well, look, I can provide this child to you. Um, so, yes... Yeah. So were these biker gangs or what? What was? Yes. What yeah. 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 
biker gangs. And, Big and gangs you... still existing today. There were only three gangs in New Zealand back in back in those days. Um, yeah. And then what happened when you ended up with the gang? Okay, I don't know how graphic you want me to get, but um, we've got to, we got to be careful how we how we phrase things. Yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah, certainly. So, look, um, I guess the the interesting thing about that was um, because I was so young and scared, I was just shaking, and I chose not to look these big scary men in the eye um so they put me on the block which is a typical gang um ceremony or initiation that they undergo which is um hands and feet tied to four corners of a um a table and then they would get into a line and just have a go um so yeah, and I how, would how did, be... How, how did you block that out, like, mentally? Oh, look, to be honest, I and survivors know this, um, it's dissociation, Sean, you cannot stay in your body and experience that. You will have heard that many times on your show, I'm sure. But, yeah, dissociation was my best friend through those years. Um, I was also drugged and made to drink a lot at the time. Um, so for me, partly, they just found it was easier if I had been given mind-altering drugs or some type of alcohol so that I wasn't so <clears throat> so difficult for them to abuse. As a young, skinny kid, did you think that this could have, you know, you could have not survived? Perhaps you could have died? Oh, well, that's, that's yeah, many times. Uh, really scary, really scary. To be fair, the, the biggest um, monster in my life, and I call him that in, in my book, it was my father. Uh, so he would come up with varying other additional forms of abuse and torture, actually, uh, because that meant in a sick abuser world, beginning with P, the P groups, um, they were, you see, they'd pay more money uh, if there were different acts added. So, I, again, I was trained very well by my grandmother and by my auntie, and I learned, actually, Sean, one of the things we do as a trauma response is you know, the fight, flight, freeze. Well, there's a fourth one, and it's called fawn, and I learned actually to fawn. So I would try and attract the eye of a gentler kind of pedophile, believe it or not. Uh, um, and sometimes that would appeal because they didn't necessarily want to hurt me as badly. Uh, so for a lot of these men and women, women abusers as well we need to um, not just have this on men um, they were you know I could perhaps in my own childlike way gain some control I know that seems laughable but it was all I had I, I had to survive so I found some ways to do that yeah that would yeah. be like trying to get the situation reduced slightly wouldn't it by going finding someone who wasn't going to be so okay so you're you're you were you were born into this then and it's absolute hell 
and how um you know you've got the survival mechanism that's that's kicking in but was there a sense that because you were born into it you didn't understand how abnormal it was yeah and i think you've coined that yeah i i I thought that was normal, except for the threats of of death and absolute horror if I ever spoke of it. Um, so to me, it was normal because it was it was an everyday um, abhorrent occurrence. And I think if I hadn't been able to find some something to to kind of have as a support for me which was no living person just to reiterate there was no one in my life no safe adult um so i i kind of turned inward actually and i i just i found little angels around me as a child and i just i think that kept me sane really you said there were you said there were several times that you were under threat of death what situations yeah. had arose to cause it to climax like that to the point where you know they were threatening to kill you? Well, there were times where um, these um, abusers were so drunk or so off their faces with drugs that they didn't always know quite what they were doing. And there were times where my father in particular would... Um, beat me so savagely using it was the old-fashioned big beer bottles back in the day and um you know kind of attacking me with that and your viewers will fill in the rest um that and then leave me there so I could be lying outside all night or tied up like a dog out on um, the back deck all night and he would come out in the morning and forget or, or you know what the f are you doing there I'm not sure what I can say on your show yeah just keep what it what are you, yeah what are, what are you doing there why are you making a fool of yourself you know and I think oh my gosh you tried to run me over in the car last night you know um and he couldn't remember. So we're talking severe psychopath. We're talking um, abuse, torture, um, absolute psychological uh, torture. Did any outsiders try to intervene in your favour? Were the hospitalisations, doctors, nurses, social services, police at any point? This was the time in, in New Zealand, and New Zealand was always a wee bit behind other countries. Sorry, fellow Kiwis, but it's true in this type of thing. You see, it was in the 1980s before police got involved in another man's business. So what I mean by that is, for instance, with domestic violence in New Zealand, uh, police would not willingly knock on a door um, and get involved because that was considered um, a man's home was his castle. So, so, so they they, they, I, yeah, I used to stay at school as long as I could. I never wanted to come home. Um, in that time that I was left in my father's house at the age of 11, I had no other family around me, so I would hide at school. I would hide in the toilets. I would hide on the school grounds, and the nuns would come out, they would always find me and, and they would always make me go home. Um, but no one ever asked any questions. No one ever wondered why. Um, 
What about and school teachers or friends you had at school? Were they, were they wondering what was going on? Well, we're, we're talking late 60s, early 70s. Um, no, people didn't get involved. And to be fair, and it's true today, I believe, if you stand a child and an adult in front of people asking questions, the adults will always believe the other adults. So it's true. Ch children are not believed if there's an adult standing there saying the opposite. Okay. I'm sure people were concerned, but no one got involved. And um, it was particularly scary for me during that time when my mother and sisters left uh, and I was left in my father's care because my brother, who was four years older, um, was also part of the abuse. And so he and his friends would uh, join in the games as well. Uh, it was great fun to them. Oh, my God. Um, you know, uh, and look, Sean, you can't go through something this big and, and escape or emerge oh. unscathed. So I didn't. I, it's taken me decades, actually, to come to a place of healing and peace. And the reason I wanted to talk to you was to expose this more and more uh, so that we can actually hand the shame back and and get people some help and support out there. You're not alone out there. There are many, many of us. Yeah, the, the only way we can um, get this remedied is by shining a light on the issue, which is prevalent yeah. everywhere. Yes. And, and, and highlighting what these people are up to so that we can get them properly prosecuted and incarcerated so if you just for the viewers then have joined the stream we're speaking to gloria masters it is a harrowing story gloria was born into a family of human transporters and so far she's talked about abuse from the family members from being transported out to gangs and the next part of the story is that they then started to use you in a in a gentleman's club and pornographic movies do you, do you want to expand on those, please? Yeah, look, and I, I'd love to say the name of this club. Um, I've been advised legally not to. Yeah, it's, let's uh, not. Let's not. Let's not. It's one of, um, one of the have, biggest groups in the world. Actually, they'll have, they'll have the video well shut. They'll have the video shut yep. down. If we use you know, I, I can't use yeah. them, but okay. they, they are well known to everybody globally. Uh, so this particular um, group used to have a monthly meeting and depending on where you were in the hierarchy within that group uh, you had um, you had access to children that were brought to these various places for them um, there was quite a symbolism quite a, a um, ceremonial uh, type activities I, I, I can't really yeah, go into detail but that. Stay yeah, that, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Anyway, but that went on, uh, and as a result of that, there were, you know, I have to say, there were police that knew of this. Um, pretty sure we're talking fairly high in, in our political system at the time as well. Uh, this is not new across the world either, I believe. Um, but but we had that. So so that was something that went on. Um, pictures and and 
back in the day, they weren't uh, videos. They were the big old projector reels and the big old whirring machines. I remember them vividly. But the nightclub and the um, the strip club they leased me out of, I was hidden away in an upstairs room. But it had a main stage where other women at the time would uh, dance and perform and cavort for the for the male punters. So it wasn't really too far from, from then before images and filming would begin. Um, I was in well over 100 of these. I believe they, police think they may have reached the States. Um, the reality is they they couldn't find them. Look, they could be some of them could be stored here still in New Zealand. Although we know we've now moved to not just video, but much much more comprehensive um, digital imaging and and pornographic material of of children. So look, they're out there. Um, that was terrible. They used to make me drink things. There were other children involved at times. Um, it was always just uh, a nightmare, really, as you would imagine. And again, I would try and sidle up to or um, attract the attention of a gentler, softer-natured abuser um, because I was hoping that then maybe I wouldn't get too badly hurt. So you're saying that there was kids and adults in these movies with you? Some, t- some of the time, yes. Some of the time it was just me dancing and performing. Um, some of the time it was other children and, and having to perform on other children and children having to perform on me, which, uh, sorry, makes me feel like throwing up, so I can only imagine for you guys out there. Okay. Uh, but they're out there, the images are out there, the so-called movies are out there. And um, you're very well connected, I think, in our country were these um, these abusers and these groups of abusers to have got away with and still goes on today. So, you know, there are many, many people out there who aren't just responsible for these acts but actually, we have the gatekeepers around them. We have the secret keepers. We have the people who are aware of of what it does go on. Um, and so for people like me, finding our voices, it's really important because it means that we can start normalising a conversation, not the acts, never the acts, but the conversation because we have to... We have to stop this, <laughs> and we can only do it if if the silence is gone. So it sounds like what you're describing is a kind of food chain that they're working you upwards, and then managing to monetize you more yes. in, in, into heavier activity, abuse activity, and yeah. by the time it's got to the movie level, then you know that's we we we're well aware that the the, the market. For that stuff is in the you know the, the many millions if not the billions a year so a lot a lot of money was being made from this it sounds very well organized yes i think hugely huge money in this huge money in this my father got one of the first four pontiacs in new zealand 
uh, through the money he made out of me. So, yeah, very lucrative business. This um, sex transporting uh, that goes on a huge money earner. And you're huge saying that you're saying that it's human. people people's discomfort that allows this cycle to continue. I believe so. Um, look, I've got lots of people here in this country that um, that love me a lot, uh, but they don't want to hear about it. It's uncomfortable for people, and they're just uncomfortable because they don't know what to say. Um, on the other side of the coin, there's these fantastic survivors globally who, you know, we stand beside each other in solidarity, actually, and we support each other's voices because, Sean, what keeps us silent is the shame. And the shame is enabled by people who aren't comfortable. <laughs> Can you see how the cycle then continues? So for those of us that have undergone this, do you really need to talk about it, Gloria? Um, I want to expose it. Yes. Otherwise, <laughs> it's never going to stop, is it? If people don't speak out, it will never stop. Yeah, it will never stop. So, look, there is there's hope out there, but we have to stop the enablers. Uh, you know, I'd love to set up a global campaign, actually, where you you can see as you as you drive past a billboard in every major country in the world. You know, speak out. You're not alone. The shame never belonged to you. Uh, because that, that's what keeps us quiet as well as people who struggle with this being true. And I'm not saying that they don't believe. I'm saying that they don't want to. Spot the difference? Yeah, it, it's such a dark thing. So yeah. how, how many years have you been speaking out about it? And are people who are trapped in these situations reaching out to you? Yeah, so um, I've been speaking about this um, much more prolifically in the last three and a half years. Um, unfortunately, we, we don't really have funding to do anything here. Um, but nevertheless, I've set up a podcast called Handing the Shame Back, where every week I interview survivors from Aotearoa across the world and very, um, very humbled, actually, to have people on the show to share their stories. You see, the thing is, every time one of us speaks out, the shame gets lessened. We, we need to hand the shame back to the abusers because it never belonged to us. It needs to go straight back to the abusers. And we need people to feel comfortable with speaking about this because the reality is the police tell me here in New Zealand, the stats are up to one in three adults. Think about that. I know, and, and the authorities are spending all this money locking kids up for weed and they, they're telling us they don't have the resources to go after these people. The whole justice system is upside down. But what, what do you think then, you know, what, say someone is concerned that a young person is going through this, what kind of signs should the public look for? Yeah, so look, some of the kids you're talking about that are getting locked up, we know that, that in our prisons, uh, a lot of these um, younger adolescents or, or adolescents and, and young adults actually have been um, the victims of child sexual abuse. 
So, the, you know, there's a little bit of an equation there. And I believe that um, the signs are anything that is kind of other extreme. So in my case, uh, I was overtly, frantically trying to get attention without saying the words. I was very naughty at school. I was naughty because it was safe. It was my one safe place. If I was naughty, I was noticed. If I was noticed, I was seen. If I was seen, I was someone, not something. When you are transported for sexual advantage to groups who don't give a a rats about you, rather their own sexual gratification, you are an object. In my parents' case, I was an object. To be at school, to be naughty, was to be seen. Yay, someone saw me, I must be a person. So a long-winded answer to your question, but any behaviours that are extreme, acting out, um, behaviour that ha has changed, so it might be someone that was relatively shy but actually withdrew completely. Anything that is extreme or changing has changed a behaviour is really worth a conversation. Because children are, are conditioned and as adult survivors we are conditioned to STFU, shut the <clears throat> up, we don't speak and we take that very seriously on threat of death and, and a lot of survivors will relate to that. Um, but for our children and young people, that won't have changed. So I guess one of the ways that I, I like to connect with young people is actually handing them a bit of paper. They Did may you... not be able to speak, but they can write. Did you try to escape and how did you get out of the situation eventually? Yeah, many times tried to escape, always brought back. Always could you, brought could back. you describe some of those times so just to take us there? Yeah, so there was <clears throat> one night at my father's home and he had a sex party. Uh, so the men would arrive and they would pay a fee. I would be in a bedroom getting ready and getting drugged. Um, so that when I came out, they would have a number, they would choose a number or they would pay and then pick a, a number out of the the glass and whoever got first got me first. And there were different rates for, you know, normal sex, um, sodomy or two at a time, you know, how, however they wanted it but the rates would change accordingly. And one night this just went on and on. And I realised at that time I didn't know if I could take much more. So there were several times in, in that beautiful little girl that I was life where I felt I just couldn't continue. So one night uh, they'd all kind of fallen into some sort of drunken or drugged haze and I managed to crawl out of the room and I just climbed into someone's boot. I opened their boot and got into their car and just stayed in there because then they couldn't find me. Then they couldn't do anything. And that person, of, of course, drove home at some point and I was in the car and it wasn't until the next day they discovered me and I thought, yay, 
I know it sounds odd, but yay, I might be safe. This person may not take me back home. No, they mm. took me back home. And, uh, yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I uh, also ran to my mother's house, which was something like four and a half kilometres away. I would hide under her house um, and try to escape, but I was always taken back. Um, the way I escaped was at the age of 12 and a half, I came home one day to hear laughter coming from the bedroom and my father was in there with another woman and that completely threw me uh, because that had been my role. I was just com quite confused but quite devastated, ran to my mother's house for the first time she listened to me and... Um, asked what was going on. I told her he was with a, a woman. Well, that was it. She was on the phone to the priest, the archbishop. She knew someone of that ilk in New Zealand. And they said, and this saved my life, I tell you now, get her out of that house. It's not safe to be there in the company of an adulterer. I'll let that sink in. Fine for me to be there in the company of a psychopathic terrorist, uh, but not fine for me to be there. Anyway, got me out of that house. I oh, couldn't believe the relief, only to be told that the bishop and the judge had decided I would have to go back every second weekend can I tell you, that felt harder. Safe for 12 days, back to hell for two. The child that walked back to my mother's after those two days was never the same child that arrived. At the age of, so this continued until I was 16, I could not leave my father's uh, <clears throat> kind of, um, you know, not custody, but visitation rights were insured until I was 16. The day I turned 16, I never had to willingly see him again, so I didn't. Yeah. So that, that, was, that was the end of it at 16. At 16. So then, of course, you can imagine after that, that sort of, I, I was a complete wreck and it's taken me decades you know I'm 61 now and I'm proud of who I am now I've emerged I'm here I'm handing back trying to help other people give some hope guys hang in there so you must have had then serious PTSD at 16 did yeah. you, a, a lot of people that we've interviewed that have had things happen of this nature have then turned to drugs to self-medicate was that the case with you or, or alcohol yeah, it's interesting. Um, to be honest, because I was given so many barbiturates as a kid and teenager, it frightened me to go there. But what I did, my biggest damage, my biggest trauma was I was this false self. I just, I, I just wasn't real. So who you saw, who the neighbours saw, or who 
this school saw was not really who I was. So think of putting on a mask at a ball. That's who I was to the world. On the inside, I was a complete um, chaotic, traumatized, um, false wreck. Uh, I, I was acting in my life. I wasn't living my life. So there's lots and lots of damage and um, took me decades and decades and decades and I made it through and I'm just so grateful that I did and and really it's a horror show. Uh, my story's being compared to that of the Holocaust um, by someone who interviewed me last year. The reality is I don't need the attention what I need is to use that as a platform to get some help for our one and three out across the world because this is a silent endemic. We need to stand beside each other. We need to get get some things going. I'm actually writing a guide at the moment, Sean, a, a book, a child sexual abuse guide to recovery because I, I want to give back. I want I want people to feel there's a way through. Um, could we just go back? Could we just go go back to you, to your way through a bit then? Um, yeah. So from from age sixteen to twenty, then who yeah. who whose car were you in? Who were you living with? What was your life like during that period? At sixteen to twenty, yeah. Um, yeah. So look, I left home as soon as I could because I had no faith in my mother at all. It was enabling one hundred and one. Um, yeah, so I went flatting, but of course I ended up in people's lives that I should never have been. Um, I was conditioned, you see, we have a template. I was conditioned to attract uh, more abuse, um, people who didn't rate me, um, and always being the carer I'd adopted that, that role. So that is what I did. Um, I, I engaged in behaviour that was really counterproductive. I attracted the wrong people to me. I acted out. I guess for me, as I say, uh, interestingly, I smoked too much. I probably drank too much. But the big thing for me was I didn't know who I was. So I was playing a role or acting a part in my own life. And, and um, you know, I... I, I'm amazed. I, I passed exams at school. I tried to get into teachers' training college, and I was 20 years old before I got to do that, and I'm so proud of that. I'm so proud of that because part of the brain shuts down through the trauma. So you talk about PTSD. There's so many other things. Um, for survivors, you know, things like hypervigilance, you're always looking behind, who's behind, who's ahead, how can I get out, where's my exit, um, how can we make sure that um, I can keep this person happy to distract them enough, you know, there's all of that, all of that stayed with me, highly anxious, highly stressed, highly skilled actually, at keeping everyone else happy, why, because it kept me safe, just because the 16 years had ended didn't mean there weren't to be another 16, 20, 30 years of, of um, healing, <laughs> as, as, you would, as you would expect. Totally. 
So as you, you, you know, you're yeah, acting yeah. out understandably from 16 to 20. As you matured into your 20s then, yeah. did that calm down or was it another chaotic decade? Uh, look, it was chaos. I, you know, no, no fault of my ex-husband. I'm being very generous here. Uh, but of course I attracted um, not a good fit for me or, or not someone who respected or valued me. I had two beautiful children in my early 30s. The memories uh, resurfaced during that time as a mother. Um, so that was a whole other hell unto itself. Um, marriage ended shortly thereafter. Um, but yeah, I think there were many, many things in my life at that time as well. I dared to tell the truth and take it to my mother. Her initial response was, you have no right to tell anyone about this. Oh, my goodness. All right, so you had two children, you said, in your 30s, yeah. which, you know, is something that most uh, yeah. people, most families, mothers, you know, that, that's, that's going to be one of the highlights of their life. But you said yeah. it... it, it uh, triggered it brought things to the surface did it yes and were yeah. those was that was those things being brought to the surface was that then sow the seeds of the breakdown of the relationship no the re relationship was never going to work Sean because I, I, you know I sort of attracted that to me which I felt I was I had no self-worth no self-esteem at all so I couldn't possibly attract someone who who might value me that that would have been counterproductive or, or bizarre um <clears throat> sorry what was the other part of your question so, um, so you talked about how you know you had two children in your 30s and most people imagine that's yeah. going to be the highlight of a person's oh, yes. life yeah. But then it, it got dark because the memories were activated. Could you give a bit more detail about how it, it it turned around like that on you? Yeah. So so look, having children, what a gift, and and I was so blessed. Um, it, I decided at the age of eleven I was going to be a really good mum. <laughs> I know that sounds bizarre, and I was. I probably went too far the other way. So. I was able to parent my children to the best of my ability. They know they're very loved. They tell me I'm I'm really in their faces, aren't you, Mum? Yes, I am, <laughs> uh, and I'm proud of that, Sean. Because really, I had I had no role modelling for how to be a parent. What wasn't quite so good was the trauma. Well, the memories were coming at me a thousand miles an hour, and if you can imagine, sixteen years of this trauma. There wasn't one or two. These were horrendous. And there was a lot of somatic um, stuff emerging as well. So with memory and recall, as survivors know, it, we get flashbacks and we might get taste. We might, you know, might see someone walking towards me and think, oh, my God, that's my father. Can't be. He's dead. Uh, but there's, there's lots of that that, that can come into our heads. And I think for me at that time, the trauma of trying to deal with what was servicing and parent two small children alone was, uh, look, it nearly broke me at times, I, I have to say. I, I had the love and support of good friends around me and um, I, I ended up going in once again and, and finding some spiritual um you know, relief, and I had a great lawyer, GP, 
psychologist at the time and, and they were all amazing. The police at the time, they did do an investigation um, once the memories had, had resurfaced and um, that they were fairly, they were, they were pretty good as well and said they would never have had a chance, uh, sorry, never have doubted putting me on the stand because I was a very credible witness, um, but they just didn't have the burden of proof because it was one word against many others. All right, so you're going through a period of these memories coming back, your relationship is breaking down, and yeah. you've got two kids now to take care of. How, yeah. how did you how did you rebuild from that? Well, it was hard. It was me or me, and you got to remember, I was conditioned to only rely on myself. I had no one uh, as a youngster, so it was very hard actually for me to reach out and ask for help from others. Um, but I slowly rebuilt through <clears throat> well several things really. Um, I had a therapist, so I was seeing someone regularly. I um, I had good friends in my life. I was a runner, so I used to run, um, and that helped me as well because uh, the dissociation would kick in. I had my children who were beautiful, um, but also a little bit triggering because, of course, they were small and and I was small when all this began. So, yeah, I needed lots and lots of help. I played netball, which I loved. Um, I, I'd play it today. Mm -hmm. The mind says, yes, the knee, the knee <laughs> say, bugger off. <laughs> uh, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, there were many, many things I had. My, my uh, Oh, I turned to the teachings of Wayne Dwyer and Louise Hay, love them or hate them. Uh, but, you know, they certainly helped my life at that time. And... There are many, many people out there who um, who have been helped through this. So spirituality was a big thing, has become bigger in my life. Writing it down really helped. Every night I'd sit up and write. I'd think I'd, I'd be waiting to for my son to wake so I could breastfeed him. And I'd think, oh, well, I'll just journal. And I'd think, he'll be up shortly. And, of course, you know those nights. <laughs> You sit up and you think, I'll oh, just keep writing, he'll wake up. He never flip and wait. Anyway, <laughs> I was exhausted. But but I, I'm also one of those people, my personality was such that I saw the humour and I don't know why, Sean, I still saw the goodness in people. <laughs> Go figure. So I was always able to see the light and... Uh, because you've got such I a beautiful, do. you've got such a beautiful spirit, Gloria, and oh. a lot of people have been through these things. Uh, they end up uh, completely broken people and get on drugs, yeah. and and they they live short, sad lives, unfortunately. But good grief! Yeah. Looking at the chat, you know, tonight everyone has just been unanimously supportive of you, saying how inspirational and brave you are. And what you've been through, you know, nobody uh, should be going through anything like that on this earth. And no. these evil perpetrators of these crimes, this is what we need to do is to expose what's going on so we can get this stuff wiped out and raise public opinion to the level whereby they demand justice on these people. Because we believe there's a, a misallocation of resources whereby, you know, they're going after low level drug users and things like that to mass incarcerate young people. And it's it's the whole justice system's upside down. But we have run out of time. I absolutely salute you. It, 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 it's been heartbreaking to hear what you went through, but necessary. And I'm going to urge the people who have just listened and, and been on this journey with you 
to go down and subscribe to your YouTube channel and support you on your socials. Do you want to just tell the viewers where they can find you and support you? Yes, certainly. So um, GloriaMasters.com, there you'll find links to books, channels, podcasts, etc. The um, podcast that I run is called Handing the Shame Back. Isn't that great? Yes. Uh, So if you Google that, you'll find that because we're handing the shame back even as we're speaking now. The other thing is that the book I've written is called On Angel's Wings, My Flight from Trauma to Grace. A little bit of a warning. It is traumatising, but there is hope, and I am writing my second book at the moment as a guide to help others out there. So you're never alone. I believe you. I stand with you. And the hope is because of people like you, Gloria. So thank you very much for spending time with us this evening. Thank you. And enjoy the rest of your day where, where it is where you are because it's quite early, isn't it? So thank you again. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. Oh, my God. Every now and then we have a story on the channel whereby it just um, leaves you almost speechless, doesn't it? And but what a brave woman and you know listening to what she went through that whole almost one hour journey such a fantastic eloquent speaker as well so can you imagine her inner strength to get through that and to not you know fall back on drugs and commit suicide and you know like like it happens to so many people that end up in those situations she's just a remarkably strong woman it's just amazing honestly to listen to her so yeah thanks thanks again so much Gloria and please please support what she's um the links down there as well yeah thank you all right I'm going to bring Andrew in now because we're going to get bring our next guest in let's bring Andrew in hey mate you're right oh man that was uh yeah Oof. very emotional very emotional Andrew to, to, to yeah. yeah to hear that and absorb everything yeah yeah do you take it on when you interview oh, emotional subjects God, I'm shook up I'm really shook up right now can you imagine a seven what was it she said she was six or seven getting transported to gangs and yeah. being forced to be in over 100 movies and things like that it's absolutely sickening absolutely sickening that this goes on but um so we're going to bring in jacob helberg next and we're going to be talking about the wires of war technology and the global struggle for power who are the major players in the tug of war for cyber security big tech cyber war um russia ukraine elon musk twitter <clears throat> that's that's going to be um continue for the next 30 minutes so i'm gonna i'm gonna leave you in charge of that i think i'm gonna go and have a bath and just try and chill out from that one mm. so i'm gonna I would just gonna... say uh jacob's not he's not in the thing yet is he okay let's have a look what's going on um <clears throat> he's not in the thing yet now let me go back to what we talked about earlier then we have got Johnny Depp news has been coming in and it is the um, defamation case. They're in court today. So they were t- his sister was in court talking about the family history and Betty Sue and John Depp divorced in, 19, in 1978 when Johnny was 15 and Christy was 18. Depp has described their family home as a ghost house, which helped turn him into a more nurturing person. Oh, I think the guest is here. I might have to cut that short one second. Let me just go. I heard a little beep then. Yep. Let me just bring this in. All right, I'm going to sign out now. I'm getting uh, 
Cool, Could mate. Get, yeah, all right, cheers. Have a nice bath. See you in a bit. Cheers, thanks. Hello, Jacob. How you doing? Hi, good. How are you? Well, I'm well, thanks. I like those headphones. They look, they're sort of a bit UFO-y. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, they're Apple's new uh, Air Max headphones. Oh, right. Well, I, I should just say we're not advertising for Apple and other brands do exist and have headphones. That's true. Too. That's like, true. What are mine? I don't even remember what they are. Does it, say? it doesn't say, does it? I don't know. Anyway, thank you for joining us. Where are you talking to us from today? I'm in Miami, Florida. Oh, nice. I've been there. It's very hot. Is it hot now? It's very warm, yeah. Are you in London? Uh, I'm actually in a place called Bristol, a couple hours west of London. Oh, cool. That's great. Yeah, it's you nice. It's like... school there. Oh, really? Oh, it's it's lovely yeah. here. Like I only, you know, I only found out about it. Like, well, I'd never been here a couple of years ago, and I decided to come because it's just lovely and rural. So, tell us about your background a little bit, and 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 also, you know, wires of war. Sure. So, I uh, co-founded a company called GeoQuant that uses software to measure and track geopolitical risk. Um, I worked on that company in the early days of when I moved to Silicon Valley back in 2015. And um, after that, I joined uh, Google's policy team where I was Google's global lead for product, all news related product policy uh, decisions and questions. And ultimately a lot of my day-to-day -day jobs helped uh, focus on helping the company figure out ways to address this new emerging trend at the time that was foreign appearance. And that quickly waterfalled into a lot of other issues relating to how do we deal with this new pattern of governments trying to use commercial civilian products for political motives? And so ultimately, as my work progressed, um, I realized that this trend was much bigger than a single company. It was about the whole industry and ultimately about the national security of democracies. And so I quickly started to uh, think about ways that I might be able to play a small role um, in this very important, big national security debate that's currently taking place in Washington. And I felt strongly that there were important pieces of that debate that were missing. And so I decided to ultimately leave Google to write a book about it. Wow. And so is your, uh, is my understanding, right, your assertion is that cyber wars, espionage, surveillance around the world are all like really connected? Absolutely. So we see in headlines on a day-to-day -day basis um, coverage around things related to Huawei, things related to Russian misinformation, um, things related to um, Chinese information operations, um, cyber hacks, uh, as well as things related to more hardware-focused questions like ZTE. And these issues are treated in the press as separate and uh, and different, but one of the main messages of the book is that they're actually all uncomfortably connected and they're part, they're two fronts of the same technology war that's currently taking place in the gray zone between the war and peace. Um, one of the, the main messages of the book is that peace and war aren't binary, they're a spectrum. And there is this gray middle uh, through which you know, technology has made it possible to uh, wage political warfare in ways that are very hard to attribute and in very, very impactful ways 
that was not possible in the days of the Cold War. And so increasingly, we've seen governments exploit these new technologies uh, to engage in day-to-day uh, -day warfare with each other and attack, undermine their adversaries, try to advance their political motives. And so uh, unfortunately, since the days of the Arab Spring, autocracies, chiefly Russia and China, and to a secondary extent, Iran, um, have been racing to figure out what very crafty ways to use technology to centralize their political control at home, as well as advance their political objectives abroad. And unfortunately, those objectives uh, inherently all happen to run directly contrary to the natural interests of democracies. Wow. I find that um, the idea of the spectrum of being at war really interesting. I used to live in Argentina and in Argentina, they all talk about the Falklands War because that was like their big war. And they always say to me like, hey, what do you guys think about it? And I always respond being from the UK, like, I don't even know because I don't even know if we're at war right now. Like in Argentina, that was their one war, like at least in recent times. Uh, and us it's like i don't i couldn't tell you if my country is at war right now and and I, I, maybe you might even be able to tell me if the is the uk at war or is it somewhere on the spectrum well i think that um one of the the areas of concern that i highlighted in the book is when i first started working on this book uh to me it was very clear that russia first and foremost was 100 percent at war with the u.s-led order so that meant being at war in the gray zone with the U.S. and to, you know, in, but also being at war in slightly more indirect ways with American allies. Let's remember in the early days of the pandemic when the EU published a report on Chinese misinformation about relating to the coronavirus, um, China retaliated by putting sanctions on EU parliamentarians, uh, China retaliated by spreading rumors that the coronavirus pandemic originated from Italy. Um, China fought tooth and nail to try to get Belt and Road signatory countries like Italy to sign up to Chinese internet infrastructure like Huawei. So I, I very much view China as waging political warfare on American allies because ultimately it's world order that they're trying to change. It's not just trying to weaken the U.S., but it's the system that the U.S. has built. And so uh, that very much includes uh, uh, allies of the United States. Hmm. And what about, do you talk in your book a, a bit about soft power? I've been, I'm really interested, of, I'm a big football soccer fan, and I see how, you know, Qatar, for example, and Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, have started buying football soccer clubs and I imagine they're doing it in other sports as well and why why do they do that and is that involved in this whole thing well one of the interesting um tidbits in the book and I don't want to give too much away because I want people to go out and read it but I one of the chapters basically hypothesizes uh what a world might look like in 2049 um in a world where China controls vast swaths of the internet infrastructure in different parts of the world, uh, a world in which China is able to use their control over that in a internet infrastructure to control flows of information in that country 
Um, and the, the hypothetical scenario where you have an, uh, an event, a black swan event, where you have a Chinese dissident that all of a sudden shows up at an American embassy in you know, China or another country, and, um, and suddenly China's censorship machine and its information operations kick in in full gear. They try to label a, that human rights dissident as, you know, uh, as crazy through a smear campaign to discredit human rights groups. They try to uh, go after any political group in the West that calls out human rights abuses as, you know, being terrorist groups. And, and they do that by controlling the internet infrastructure in those countries. Because if you control the internet at the hardware level, you can basically compromise everything that runs on top of that infrastructure. And so to a great extent, that is soft power. I mean, that is, you know, the, the ability to um, slowly but surely get in people's heads and ultimately distort what people see and engage with on a day-to-day -day basis. The one thing that I would add though, is that control of the internet infrastructure at the hardware level goes far beyond soft power. I would argue it's a form of hard power. The reason is that it's not just the ability to push narratives and do in info ops, but more, you know, perhaps more importantly, it's the ability to see all things in all places at all times. You are able to have a perfect surveillance state. So they would have the ability to know all the deepest, darkest secrets of all the judges, journalists, and politicians in a given country. And it, you know, the natural question that flows from that is, what do you call a country um, where you know, a foreign government knows all the deepest, darkest secrets of all the judges, politicians, and journalists in that country? Is that country independent or is that country a de facto vassal satellite state? And I would argue that ultimately uh, China astutely understands that when you control the wires in the ground, you don't have to send troops on the ground in order to create a sphere of influence. Uh, they get it. That's why they've subsidized Huawei to the tune of $75 billion. And they've you know, fought tooth and nail for Huawei to be exported abroad. And uh, that's ultimately why we should do everything we can to push back and you know, say, no way, Huawei. Hmm. It's funny, this um, the Russia-Ukraine war is a bit of a throwback, isn't it? Because I think we all expected the next big war would all be done with computers and things. And it's actually like, tanks going in and people like you know shooting each other yeah and um to be clear war is a spectrum so it's not because there are things taking place in the gray zone that that all automatically means that you're never going to have a hot war again i mean um it's absolutely a spectrum i think today actually one of the things that we're seeing is the question isn't so much whether or not we're in a cold war i think the question is do we keep that cold war cold or does it, you know, accidentally bleed into a hot war? And so, and I think you, you see that with Ukraine. Ukraine was a failure of deterrence. Ultimately, we failed to deter Russia, which is why Russia's in, in Ukraine right now. And so the big test for American foreign policy is how do you deter, how do you avoid repeating the same mistakes uh, with in the East Asia Pacific? And are we going to be able to deter China from making a move on one of its neighbors, probably Taiwan, but let's remember China has border disputes with 17 countries. So 
and it already made a move, you know, in its border with India. Um, so it could be Taiwan, but hey, it could be another place that we don't expect. So, um, you know, but, but based on satellite imagery and our intelligence, the world already knows that China is carrying out a massive military buildup right across the Taiwan Strait. So with that information in mind, it, I think it's, it should be a pressing foreign policy objective for us to think long and hard about how do we avoid a similar fact pattern as we had with Ukraine, and this time around, make it clear that the cost of an invasion in Taiwan would ultimately end up a, being a losing proposition. It would be a failure. I think it's important for us to make that very clear that they would not win that fight. And how do we make that clear? I suppose Russia at the moment is not winning their fight, but China compared to Taiwan is, is even more of a sort of Goliath taking on David, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But um, I think the, the two critical takeaways from Ukraine, and frankly, just from recent um, events, you know, I would argue to some extent Afghanistan, is um, two major lessons that stand in Ukraine. Number one, the value of giving weapons early before the, an invasion happens. If you wait until after the invasion happens, it's really, really hard to provide weapons to a country that's already at war. Uh, it's hard because you have you know, the aggressor that's already on the ground. It's hard. How do you get weapons in the hands of the defender without accidentally getting in the hands of the aggressor? You know, Sometimes there's uh, aggressor planes in the air. The logistics become exponentially more complicated. Um, you have to think through the logistics supply chains of, okay, you have fighters, how are they gonna get fuel for you know, their, uh, their vehicles? How are they gonna get all the logistics supply chains that they need in order to fight and win a conflict, a battle? And, uh, and so you have to plan all of that beforehand and you have to basically give them the weapons that they need uh, early. And, I would argue that obviously harpoons uh, in um, in Taiwan are are the key. Uh, I mean, you need to give them weapons that uh, will be will allow them to sink ships, and ultimately devices that will allow them that if amphibious ships, um, if Chinese amphibious ships are able to make a landing on uh, Taiwanese beaches. You need IEDs to blow them up. Uh, war is, you know, unfortunately a violent thing as we've seen with Ukraine. But ultimately, if a war is declared, you have to think about who's going to win. And so we want democracy to win. And so you have to give them the weapons to fight to do that. You know, it's the arsenal of democracy proverb. And in World War II, the U.S. was the arsenal of democracy. And I've many times have said that it's not sustainable in 2022 for the U.S. to be the world's policeman. It is sustainable for us to act as an arsenal of democracy. And I think we should 100% do that. The second takeaway from Ukraine was thinking long and hard about, does this country have the will to fight? Ultimately, when you're trying to help, you people need to want to help themselves uh, in order to uh, be helped, you know, in order to be helped. In Afghanistan, you had a classic example where you have on one hand the Taliban and the other hand the Afghan army, and one side wanted to fight and the other side didn't. And no matter, you know, we were there for 20 years, they had all the weapons, they had, you know, I mean, a lot, a lot of resources. 
an army of 300,000 and it melted away in just a few days. Now, scholars will debate, you know, was there corruption? Were there, you know, backhanded side deals cut with the Taliban and the Afghan army? Whatever. The point is that these soldiers were not fighting. And you have the opposite situation in Ukraine, where you have a much, much smaller army than Russia, but people that will absolutely go to the mat and give their lives away to fight for their country and their liberty. And on the other hand, you have soldiers, Russian soldiers, that don't know what they're even doing there in the first place. And so when we evaluate the dynamic with Taiwan, I think it's really important for us to assess long and hard. Are the Taiwanese ready to fight? And do they have that will to fight? And if the answer is no, that creates a very different equation for us than if the answer is yes. If the answer is yes, let's get weapons to them and let's help them do that. If the answer is no, I think we need to think long and hard about you know, how that country is going to be defended. But if we start sort of training up Taiwan and giving them, you know, weapons and things, does that is that not like a, a, a you know, red flag to a, a bull or whatever the expression is to China? You know, China is already building. I think it would be if China hadn't been carrying out its military buildup. I think it would be considered a provocation if there was a, a total state of peace and, you know, business as usual in China. I don't think it's a red flag because China has already, you know, they have already been carrying out simulations of beach landings on Taiwanese uh, beaches. They've been carrying out simulations of, you know, reproduct copycat reproductions of the Taiwanese presidential palace and how do you capture the Taiwanese presidential palace? Uh, they have been carrying out simulations of how to sink American aircraft carriers. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the images. Um, they, um, I mean, they're, the scope of and, and the breadth and depth of their military buildup across the Taiwan Strait is so massive that us providing weapons to Taiwan would simply be defensive. I mean, Taiwan, China knows that they, China is not at risk from being attacked by Taiwan. This is purely defensive. And the same way that Russia was not at threat of being attacked uh, by either Georgia or Ukraine. And so, um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't support necessarily giving a lot of weapons to Taiwan had China not carried out the military buildup. But now that they have, I mean, you have to ha create counter preparations to their own preparations. Our preparations necessarily needs to be based in the fact pattern on the ground. And that fact pattern has changed because China has carried out a massive military buildup. And how is um, cybercrime being used by countries in the Russia-Ukraine conflict at the moment? Well, it's a little hard to tell because there's a lot of fog of war at work. Um, we know that, surprisingly, Russia's been a lot less effective than everyone had predicted. Um, I mean, Russia, Russian tanks, in some cases, have been communicating via cell phones because actually Ukrainian hackers have been able to take down their supposedly encrypted communication lines. Um, so uh, it's it's kind of, you know, we know that the website of the Duma was down um, at the beginning of the conflict. It's It seems as though right now, based on the anecdotes that have been reported through the press, that the Ukrainians have actually been to some extent uh, slightly more effective than the Russians. But I think it's hard to have a full fair accounting of what, you know, the impact of cyber attacks on both sides right now, because, you know, to be honest, obviously, 
part of a, a state of war is that both sides have a very strong incentive to uh, present themselves as winning. So who know, you know, nobody really knows what's actually going on. Um, but, but certainly it seems as though the Russians have been, have surprised the world in not living up to the expectations that everyone had about, you know, the uh, astonishing cyber capabilities that Russia has touted for such a long time. There have been a lot of comments um, <clears throat> coming from people saying that, you know, Ukraine's no angel and they've had weapons and, you know, all that kind of thing. But and, and I, you know, there's always two sides to things, I guess. And but what, I like what you were saying about being the arsenal of the democracies, because whatever way you look at it, and I'm sure Ukraine is no angel because what country is? Um one of those countries appears to be a democracy and the other doesn't. And if we want to continue being a democracy, you know, presumably that's that's the side we have to pick. Yeah, and to be fair, I'm not, you know, defending everything that Ukraine has ever done. I'm not saying Ukraine is a perfect country. I know Ukraine is, like every democracy, has its flaws. No democracy is perfect. Every, every democracy has its flaws. And I think the difference is that, it, number one, in a democracy... Um, we talk about our flaws openly. We have a free press, we have debates, you know, we introspect and we try to, we create spaces for people that want to shine a light on our flaws and to hopefully, you know, self-correct and improve, you know, our democracy. And number two, I think it's not so much, the question with Russia and Ukraine isn't so much, oh, is Ukraine perfect or do they also have, you know, uh, things that one could reproach them. The question is really, do they deserve getting invaded and having their cities, you know, burnt to the ground? And I think, I mean, no matter what the flaws are, the answer is definitely no, because when you look at the human rights atrocities um, and frankly, war crimes that have been carried out against innocent Ukrainian civilians, I mean, no country deserves that. Mm. No, absolutely. And then tell me what is going on, um, you know, Elon Musk getting involved in Twitter. Uh, what role will his his acquisition of Twitter uh, play on all of this? Well, I, I mean, it's uh, it's probably not for me to speculate too much on, you know, what his plans are with Twitter. But I know that obviously a lot of people are excited about the idea that Elon might bring a different perspective to um you know, Twitter's leadership and, you know, the philosophy that Twitter brings to how it runs its platform. And I know that content moderation is obviously a big piece of that. Hmm. And, um, well, I don't know. I think we've got four minutes. So I was going to ask you to, uh, yeah, tell us, I mean, like, where can people get your book and, and like, what, what are you up to? Let's do some promoting for Jacob. Yeah, so people can follow me on Twitter at Jacob Halberg. I uh, highly encourage folks if they want to uh, stay tuned on the latest events and the going on in, in tech and foreign policy. And they can uh, look at my book on Amazon, The Wires of War, Technology, and the Global Struggle for Power. Just looking for you on Twitter. Do you have lots of followers? Yeah, doing okay. Doing okay. 12, oh, 12 and a half. It's quite a lot. It's more than me. I'm on, I'm on like four or something. Follow all of us. Follow, get us on, on Twitter. We've got a few minutes left, actually. So what else should we talk about? What have I not covered that you think is an, an interesting part of your book and your work? 
Well, I think I'm going to channel my husband for a second and ask you, you know, what you're waiting for to move to Florida and, you know, create a, you know, successful podcast station here and Florida is the next frontier in American, you know, uh, demography. And so curious to turn the table around and ask you that question. Now you want us to move the Sean Atwood show to Florida? <laughs> Why you... not? Palm trees in the background. <clears throat> Well, with the thing is with Sean's, um, I'll call it a haircut. I just would be concerned about the climate. Do you know what I mean? I think it might it might really do him some damage at the back of of the head. Um, and he did live in America, and I think I'm not even. You know what? I'm not sure he's actually allowed into America. Oh. Yeah. So that's uh, the thing with Sean. Yeah, he's ba- Ash has just confirmed that Sean is banned from the U.S. So. Why is that? <laughs> Well, Sean used to be like a, a drug lord or something. Um, <laughs> welcome to the show. Sean yeah. was, um, uh, he was in an Arizona prison for, I think it was five years, but people will correct me if I'm wrong about that. It might have been four or five. Um, four, four. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because he's he's such a, he's a brilliant presenter and uh, interviewer and stuff. And if you don't know the backstory, that's how I got to know him because I had Sean on my own uh, channel to because mine is my own channel separate by co-host on here so i had him on to just oh six and a half years ash tells me the producer six and a half years in an arizona prison um so i had him on to tell his whole story and then they've asked me to come and co-host um and it's just the most he's just the most uh unusual person in the world so he can't be in the u.s unfortunately Wow. Well, I mean, maybe, um, maybe I'll, for our second conversation, we can talk about his story. And I uh, had no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a hell of a story. He's a fascinating guy. Um, and I could go to the US though, and I've been to Miami quite a few times, and I just it is too hot for me. It's just, and it's year round, isn't it? It's relentless. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's actually pretty. It's very, very nice um, in the winter and and spring. Mm. Well, actually, I want to. I'm going to bring Sean in to say hello quickly if he's ready. Are you ready, Sean? We're just telling. We're talking about you, mate. You've run over to tell your story. Oh, huge thank you for coming on, Jacob. Fascinating insights. <laughs> Definitely. Sure, yeah. Yes, appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, Jacob I just was, had an insight into your life. I, I was a stock. I was a stock market guy. Uh, went wild. I, I made a lot more money than I had common sense in my twenties. I started to throw rave parties with it. There wasn't any ecstasy, so we addressed that situation. We had people importing ecstasy, which led to the SWAT team smashing my door down. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it, was, it was the education opportunity of a lifetime, Arizona jail. You know, it was, uh, yeah. How long did you go to jail for? <laughs> I was in jail for just under six years. Yeah, about the right amount of time. Before. For having ecstasy at parties? Mm. Importation. Yeah, it was a conspiracy case. Oh, interesting. I had, uh, I had over 100 co-defendants. You, you can literally see <laughs> so. Jacob's career flashing before his eyes. He's thinking, am I going to be affiliated with this guy now? <laughs> well, I'm just trying to think, what does importation mean? I mean, we're, you know... Yeah, Holland. I had people flying them over from Holland. Yeah, lots of pills. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, um, you know... It's uh, that sounds like a sounds like a very deep story. Yeah, check out my locked up abroad episode. It's called Raving Arizona. If you're an old school raver, you'll uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we're gonna yeah. bring Charlie Robinson in now. So huge thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, thanks for spending time with us. Cheers. Yeah, thank you so much.
All right, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. What a lovely gentleman. Yes, very, very nice. I will leave you to this now. Thank um, you. That was so funny that <laughs> you didn't know your, your story. People don't know your story and they come on and now they're forever affiliated with you. <laughs> uh, have, a, have a good one, mate. I'll see you Cheers. in um, Cheers. an hour. All right, thank you, Andrew. See you then. Yeah, and if you're watching this, uh, we the hackers attacked attacked the channel at lunchtime when we were doing the live stream lineup video. So if you do want to join the live stream comments, we've got it set right now. Whereby you have to subscribe to the channel and wait a minute before you can join the live stream because the hackers attacked us at lunchtime and we had to um, take quick action. All right, Charlie. How are you doing, my friend? I have no problem being associated with you. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time. Yeah, we and touche. I mean, we're at some of the same clubs together on the same substances. Allegedly. I know, <laughs> I know. The old days, Las Vegas. What was it called? Las Vegas um, Club Utopia. New Club Year's Utopia Eve. Millennium. Yeah, turn of yeah. the millennium. We were, we were raving at the same joint, yeah. Yeah, you, me, and unbeknownst to you, probably also the actor known as Doogie Howser, <laughs> <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris. I saw him oh, in, the wow. in the bathroom that night. He was really? out of his mind. Wow. He, he was not diagnosing anybody with anything. <laughs> All right, so just to recap to people then, Charlie is a prolific author. He's been banned from many platforms uh, for saying certain words and certain theories that we'll avoid today. But what he is an expert in is not just the NWO, but also, you know, many people say you've got to follow the money. If you look at what Russell Brand's talking about, he follows the money of Big Pharma, follows the money of the, the, the defense companies, defense attack companies. This is where the taxpayers' money is like a huge trillion, multi-trillion dollar feeding trough that these parasitic entities get the schnauts in at your the taxpayers expense and if you follow that money you see what is driving the the world economies and how things are being subverted for these the, the crisis after crisis after crisis so tonight with charlie let me just pull this up real quick we're going to discuss several things we're going to discuss elon musk's twitter activity we're going to dis discuss, uh, you know, the restrictions on free speech, uh, and what what it means to Twitter. You know, they 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 bragged that they were all about free speech, and then what? Look what happened. Uh, we're going to hopefully touch on what's just come up in the news today. I don't know if Charlie's had a chance to look at the Johnny Depp defamation court hearing today. Have you had a, any chance to look at that? I knew it was happening. But I haven't seen any sort of, um, I didn't know, is there a resolution to it? No, he's got his sister on the stand talking about his family history and, you know, what what, what hard time he had growing up and things like that. So that's, all, that's all we know so far. And they, she's she's uh, giving some digs to the ex as well. Have, have you managed to watch the Jimmy Savile documentary on Netflix that's in the top 10 in the UK right now? I have not watched it yet, but it is on my list of things to do. My yeah. mom has watched it. She said, "She said you you need to watch it. You'll probably know the stories. You know, you probably you probably won't learn anything that you don't already know, but it's worth watching." Yeah, I'm interested in it. I'm interested in seeing. Um, you know, this is that his story. I think is a reminder to people about how dirty the media is because the BBC knew who he was. 
there was it was undeniable. Johnny Rotten knew who he was in the late 70s. You know, I'm sure if Johnny Rotten knew, the BBC knew. So the the idea that the mainstream media in whatever country you're living in is going to give you some version of the truth that's unbiased or unfiltered is just it's just uh, laughable because they are not working in your best interest. In fact, the mainstream media has a different, a totally different agenda. That's why people like Jimmy Savile can go, um, you know, undetected by the, by the general public for a long, long time because the media protected him. And we see the same thing in America on a much different scale uh, in terms of, of sexual misconduct. But look what's happened at CNN. You had producers arrested and uh, fired for two different producers arrested for for their involvement with uh, underage kids and the mothers of underage kids, too, which is totally weird. You have all of the, almost all of their anchors in some form or fashion are involved in some sort of sexual misconduct on Lemon, uh, Andrew Cuomo or, or Chris Cuomo, or, you know, the, the, the Cuomo brothers and their connections to CNN and, and all of this. It's it's a the media is a dirty place. Um, Savile probably just fed fit in fine there, I would I would suspect. And what we've seen is the rise of Russell Brand. I mean, he's just become an absolute phenomenon on YouTube. I don't know if you've, you've managed to watch any of his stuff and he's outing yeah. the media. He's he's following the money and he's doing these really thorough videos that i fear uh, is is going to cause him to end up like you know what happened to us last year strikes terminations etc yeah. have, have you been watching his rise and, and and do you have similar fears for him i do i have and i do um i i i love russell brand's work um you know i saw him i remember seeing him in vegas a comedy show in vegas when my wife was pregnant so that was the summer of uh, 2011 so i've been I've been a fan of his for a long time. I love what he's saying. It's refreshing. I feel like everybody should be saying the things that he's saying, but we were so devoid of that in, in the general media that when you, when you catch somebody that gets it, you want to just hold on to him and go, yes, where have you been all my life? You know, Russell, mm -hmm. yes, you're, you're, you know, and, and of course his platform, his, you know, his, his status inside the community has made him, um, you know, it, he's he's reached out to a lot of people. He's connected with a lot of people that that see. He's just asking the questions. He's asking the questions that we're asking, which is, you know, hey, some of this stuff doesn't make sense. This looks like there's criminality involved in in this. The uh, the media is saying one thing. Um, you've got uh, the po politicians are 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 leading us down a, a a very dark path, and he's calling them out for it, which is what you should be doing. But like you said, I, I have fears that um, they'll try to silence him in some way, shape or form. And of course, you know, if you if you have to play in that industry and he does, he's an actor, comedian. And now now in, in the podcasting realm, they have they have ways to get to you. They have ways to make you uh, unappealing to the masses. They can they can. Uh, We've watched what they've done to David Icke um, with a certain country in the Middle East that says, uh, if you criticize us, we will make sure that you are not uh, allowed anywhere. So if Russell Brand finds himself on the wrong side of that lobby, he'll be uh, he'll get the David Icke treatment and, and he'll know what that will will make make him feel like. And, and of course, you, you and I both have a have a good relationship with David. We know what he's been through. I, well, actually, I should rephrase that. 
we'll never really know what David's been through. David's been through a, a, a whole, you know, we, we hear about what David has, has gone through, but uh, it, it, it'll wreck you. You know, it, it'll wreck you if you get on the wrong side of, of these people. So I'm, I'm, I'm simultaneously grateful for Russell Brand talking about these things. But I also am um, not trying to make a big deal out of it, of course, but but I also am in concerned for him because unfortunately, the people that talk about this uh, with a big platform tend to draw the wrong sort of attention from the powers that be. And so, uh, I, but he's a smart guy. I think he knows that. I think he's trying to find where that where that line is. Sometimes you won't find it till you've crossed it, but um, I definitely like his stuff. Yeah, I didn't find it until I crossed it. And the community guidelines have tightened since I crossed it. And he's definitely over certain targets that would trigger uh, strikes if uh, the powers that be decide to target him in that way. Now, I'm eternally grateful for my followers, the outpouring of support, you know, the all the, all the messages that, that were sent into YouTube. With Russell Brand, I think he's got 5.5 million subscribers right now. So if he was struck down... What kind of a public backlash do you think that would generate if he's got 5.5 million subscribers? Hopefully it would generate a great one. It would it would create a, a another situation, yet another situation, where we could have the conversation about free speech and about censorship. And where do we draw the line on these public-private platforms? And, well, it's a private company. They can do what they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Google takes took seed money from companies that are tied to the government. So we we need to get rid of this. They're a private company. They can do what they wanted. I When I say private, I understand that they're publicly traded, but what I don't, I mean, non-governmental. They've taken money from venture capital funds. They've taken money from InQtel. That's the venture capital arm of the CIA. So I did a, an episode um, of macroaggressions that was called The Creatures from Sand Hill Road as sort of a tribute to G. Edward Griffin, the creature from Jekyll Island, which was talking about the Federal Reserve and their, um, the, the creation of money in that scam. And I was talking about Sand Hill Road, which is the uh, road that connects uh, Menlo Park and Palo Alto in Northern California in Silicon Valley, which is where the venture capital firms are or mostly on that road. It's a stretch of a couple mile long road where you get most of the uh, venture capital companies. And th these people have a lot of power. And so when we're talking about, we're going to talk about Twitter today and the role of free speech. Um, it's not limited to Twitter. Of course, uh, YouTube has their problems with free speech. And um, part of that is baked into the equation because when you have people that are sitting on your board of directors that are also members of the world economic forum, mm -hmm. then you're going to have this influence that's coming external to the company. So even if Susan Wojcicki woke up one day and decided that she was now all of a sudden a proponent of free speech, she could be overruled by the board because the board uh, sees her, you know, the board has, uh, has ties to other influences. So it's, it's important that we understand that uh, these companies don't just come into existence on their own. There's a lot of money behind them. That money is deemed smart money, meaning it comes with connections. And those connections run very deep. A lot of them run to the intelligence agency, especially if you're talking about groups like Facebook and Twitter and Google, the, all the information sector, that they have deep uh, ties to the the 
intelligence agencies like the CIA and the NSA. So we're in a, a situation where free speech may not actually ever be fully possible as long as it's coming through the big tech companies because they themselves have been captured from the beginning. How did we get here, Charlie? Because years ago, Twitter was boasting what a bastion of free speech it was. And now you say the slightest little thing out of line in in accordance with the community guidelines, which which just keep, keep tightening, and they they boot you off just like that. So how how does it, it go from one thing to the complete opposite? I think Trump played a role in this, <laughs> not not in any sort of policy decision, but just his personality. You know, he was on there and he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I'm no, I'm not for or against the guy. He's got his problems. I, he, he did some interesting things, uh, but I, I do recognize that he makes people insane. And on Twitter, he was, <laughs> he was just going scorched earth on people. And whether, whether that was the actual reason or whether that was a good enough excuse to implement it, the free speech uh, removal happened in a coordinated manner. Actually, if we're going to be honest about it, with Alex Jones in, in that d determination where they said, all right, he's gone. And then he was gone from Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. He was gone all at the same time. That is not accidental. So I think that this comes out of dictates that are being set upon to, to these tech companies by the Council on Foreign Relations, by the Bilderberg Group by the German Marshall Fund, by the Pointer Institute, these non-governmental organizations, these NGOs that have an undue amount of influence and have a lot of overlap. If you were to look at, uh, you know, management boards of Twitter and Council on Foreign Relations and, and World Economic Forum, there's going to, that Venn diagram, there's going to be a lot of overlap there. So, sorry, so, Charlie, sorry, Charlie, you, you listed a, a bunch of different organizations. I've heard, yeah. heard of two or three of them. What what were the two that you mentioned at the end? Pointer Institute What's and that? German Marshall Fund. Yeah, what, could you ex could you explain what they, those are? Pointer Institute is a is an NGO that is really focused on speech, ironically, because they're trying to censor it. <laughs> but they they <laughs> they hold themselves out like a lot of these. Are. They say we are managing to make sure that uh, that there's not a lot of disinformation and misinformation. You know, they do that whole thing, and you go, oh well, define disinformation and misinformation and it's like basically anything that disagrees with the established narrative is disinformation or misinformation so they're just another watchdog group that can that you can uh you know that that has organizational people sitting on you know members of their board and then they put them in other places as well and so it's it's just part of this web and the german marshall fund is the same same sort of thing except there's some overlap between um uh, Guido Gold. I think you and I talked about this before with Guido Goldman, who was the founder of the German Marshall Fund. He happened to be Jeffrey Epstein's next door neighbor, so uh, in New York City. So there's there's some there's there's a lot of um, any of these NGOs that are set up in a way that are talking about how they're going to preserve free speech. You can almost bet that they're going to be the ones that are destroying it. So when you when you look at a group like a, like a company like Twitter, and you might be tempted to, to think that all of the decisions that Twitter makes are coming from inside of Twitter. And that might be the case on 
minute things, things that don't really matter. But in terms of overall structure of who is allowed, you know, what voices are allowed and uh, to, to be heard and which ones should be silenced, sometimes these companies um, have to listen to their board. And if the board of directors has a bunch of people from Silver Lake Partners and KKR and Sequoia Capital and Accel Partners and Google Ventures on there, and then those groups have ties to InQtel and the World Economic Forum, well, then who's really on your board of directors? Is it Klaus Schwab in disguise? Is he is he disgu disguised as Jim Breyer from Accel Partners? Because Accel Partners has tight connections with um, the World Economic Forum and they finance Twitter. So now what do we do? You know, so so it, it's not as simple as as um, Jack Dorsey or Argwal, whoever is, is the current CEO of Twitter. You might think that the buck stops with them, and it maybe it does on some uh, rudimentary decision making levels. But but as far as the overall drive, uh, those guys answer to people too. The CEOs of of these publicly traded companies most definitely answer to people higher than them. It's interesting because you've touched on some points there that have kind of put things into place for me that I was pondering the other day on a live stream because I said the purpose of a company in theory is to create value for its shareholders by generating increased earnings over time, which would lead to its, its stock price rising over time. Twitter came out almost a decade ago, I think it was at $26. And it's just gone sideways between about 70 something to the teens for a decade, so so no no real wealth has been created other than, than for the insiders. So does that mean there's a bigger function to Twitter, an intelligence agency function, perhaps, that is overriding the typical corporate function? Yeah, you would think. I mean, if you're if you're a shareholder, um, I, I, if I were a shareholder of Twitter, a, a large one that had some say in this, if I was on the board, I would be saying, you know, my share price has done nothing. Um, over as long as I've had this, this stock and maybe, and you guys are destroying your platform by throwing people off of it. Really popular people. You claim to be about free speech. You're not, nobody believes that anymore. And people are leaving. If they're not thrown off, they're leaving, especially conservatives and looking for other places to go. You are, you are actively destroying the platform. My question is why it can't be good for shareholder value because if it was, then the shareholder the share price would rise. It hasn't, so it's not working. They're they're talking about, you know, the 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 employees of Twitter that now are having to process Elon Musk coming in as the largest shareholder. A lot of them are freaking out. Well, you know what? The shareholders should be, should have been the ones freaking out all along. You guys were driving this co uh, company into the ground. Who knows how many legitimate accounts are really even on there? Elon Musk himself came on and said, we got to get rid of all the bots. <laughs> Whoa. Yes, you do. But you're not, I mean, theoretically, you're not supposed to say that. But he let the cat out of the bag. There's a lot of bots on there. So if it is, Sean, about increasing shareholder value, they've done a poor job of that. But if it is about controlling narratives and managing speech, they've done an excellent job because they can make something, a, they can make a big deal appear to be a small deal and they can turn a small deal into a big deal. 
simply by the use of the bot army, the blue check marks and all of this and create a feedback loop where it looks like based on your algorithm and feed, it looks like this stuff is everywhere when in actuality it's nowhere. So there, there, it's, it's a dangerous thing when it, when it comes to, when it comes to managing free speech, Twitter is among the worst at it. Which is funny because they 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 claimed early on at least that they were all about free speech. They're they're most definitely not. Obviously, they 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 are, um, you know. But when you take money, when you take money from the wrong people, you you answer you have to answer to them, and and that's what these tech companies have done. And it's not accidental, of course. I mean, they, you 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 could take money from anyone. But you, they seem to take it from the same groups, and then you'll see. Um, also, it also matters who's on the board, who owns, even if it's not a venture capital fund who's funding you early on, who's who's taking stakes in it afterwards. Black BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. Okay, now you answer to them. This is the new United States government. <laughs> you know, BlackRock is managing, um, or Blackstone, I should say, is, um, managing. The, the Federal Reserve's money now. This is insanity. This should never be happening. So we're in a situation where the large hedge funds and the large venture capital funds are the ones driving policy on freedom of speech inside America, and that should never happen. Surely Donald Trump was the best advertisement for Twitter in the entire world because it was constant, you know, the news headlines every single day about his tweets. And then you saw him kicked off it, showing that the shareholder value theory was way down the scale compared to the weaponized, political weaponization of, of Twitter. I mean, yeah, Donald Trump is good for business. He's good for CNN's business. He's good for Twitter's business. They want to deny him the voice because that's that's actually how you can tell. You know, they, they wanted they they do everything they can to get rid of the guy. But they need him at the same time. Like like CNN is lost without him. They've lost 90% of their 91% of their uh audience. 91%. You can't. If you were trying to lose 91% of your audience, I don't even know how you would go about doing it. But CNN has found a way to, to, uh, to make this happen. And, and look, Donald Trump said it to them. He said, uh, you guys need me. You, you, you say you hate me, but you need me and you, you'll miss me when I'm gone. And, and that's, that's true. Twitter misses him, believe me. All right. So let's just go through a bit of a background then on Elon Musk. Who is Elon Musk? What is his philosophy on free speech? And what is he doing acquiring these Twitter shares? Uh, Elon Musk is an interesting guy. He's a South African who went to school in America, University of Pennsylvania, uh, double majored in business and physics, and then started creating companies. He sold his first company in 1999, uh, Zip2, which was like a... Um, licensed out content for uh, tourist bureau convention and visitors bureaus i think like something along those lines took that money had it made a nice little bit made about 22 million dollars when he sold that that was his his cut uh started a company called x.com which was involved in banking x.com got wound up getting folded into another company uh in called paypal and that's where you get the paypal mafia that's um that's um, P 
Peter Thiel, that's Reed Hoffman, that's Elon Musk, that's uh, a few other guys that uh, started uh, started PayPal, built that up, sold it off to eBay, and then took that money and started other other companies as well. So Elon why, Musk, why are they why are they referred to as the PayPal mafia? Because they went on to go start a bunch of other companies after that. It's like, uh, um, they, it was a, it was a great batch of, I mean, great, like a brilliant batch of, of, of people involved in that, that weren't, that, that hit it big early on in life and clearly weren't ready to retire. So you, you, you can go a couple a couple different directions with that. You can go, uh, well, I'll start my own companies, or you can say, well, I'll I'll, I'll start a venture capital company and 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 fund a hundred companies. So that's where you've got um, like Reed Hoffman from Greylock, who was part of the PayPal mafia, and and th- these these Greylock is a, a venture capital fund. These these guys had so much money, they almost didn't know what to do with it all. So Peter Thiel went on to start Palantir, which is a really scary dystopian uh, artificial intelligence uh, department of defense company that manages uh, data for the government in a almost exclusive capacity. He's uh, also started a blood comp- a company that does takes young kids' blood and sells it to old rich people. So you can sort of draw whatever parallels you want from that. Is that, he poor, was, is that poor people's blood going to rich people? Oh, I would definitely assume so. His, the company's called Ambrosia. Because it was prisoners' uh, it, blood in the beginning, wasn't it, that was going to people? Yeah, yeah, of course. There, that, that was that was that was definitely happening. I'm not sure if it was happening with his company, but I definitely I heard of prisoners' blood being taken and used, um, which sounds like a bad idea considering the rate of hepatitis and everything found in prisons. But uh, there, listen, was an epi- wanna... there was an epidemic of HIV and hepatitis, and people are still suffering the consequences to this day from the tainted blood from the prisoners going back decades. Yeah, yeah, bad bad idea. But there there is a there is a theory or maybe it's beyond theory that you know young blood uh well there's actually a term young blood, you know young blood kind of comes in to help to uh regenerate the old the old body. And when you see guys like I don't know, Henry Kissinger at 97 years old, r- you know, running away from reporters that are trying to ask him questions, you realize that's not normal. Maybe he's got it. Maybe he's taking a bunch of this extra blood when David Rockefeller lives to be a hundred years old, they're probably doing something. So that's, that's Peter Thiel. That's one of the guys, you know, then Elon goes on and starts uh, a variety of companies, obviously Tesla and SpaceX. And these companies, you know, when you look back on them, there were some pivot points there where it could have gone away. It could have all gone away. Um, Elon Musk for better or for worse is a bit of a, a bit of a gambler. You know, he, he doubled down and tripled down on these companies and of course government contracts help so so but whatever he 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 wound, wound up uh, making this happen in, in a way that uh created you know made him the richest person in the world that that you know I, I i there's an asterisk there obviously when you're talking about Rothschilds and Rockefellers and DuPonts and Morgans and all these people, you know, when you say rich, uh, Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, it's like, yeah, yeah, on paper, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're not going to, 
dig into the vaults of the Vatican. We'll find some, some real money there, but, but, but whatever he he's, he's developed himself as this semi-autistic, you know, definitely sort of maybe Asperger's on the spectrum, unusual tech guy who starts these massively transformational, uh, companies and, uh, and has created a rather, you know, a, a massive war chest from that, giving him the ability to do things like buy 9.2% of Twitter. If he chooses to, frankly, buy all of Twitter, if he chooses to. So, um, you know, he's got, he's got some, there's some good projects he's working on. There's some bad projects he's working on. Nobody is a fan of Neuralink. Neuralink is the implantable brain chip device that he talks about. Um, he, 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 on the one hand, Elon Musk says, well, we got to be careful of artificial intelligence because, you know, it could turn out like Terminator and kill us all. And then on the other hand, he says, but here's Neuralink. We'll implant this in your brain. It's like, hang on a second. <laughs> we, can't, we can't have the conversation about transhumanism being bad. And then you also trying to sell us the chip that goes in your brain because that's not going to work. So that seems a bit devious and nobody is a fan of that. Um, Starlink satellite internet. I mean, on the surface, bringing internet to people that don't have it sounds like a good idea. Uh, it also, I, I've, I've talked to Alana Freeland about the space fence that's being built. I, when I hear space fence, I also think Starlink. And so all of these things that he's involved with, there's like a good side, but if it's in the wrong hands, there's, it's a bad side. So, so, you know, he, he's, he's talking about, you know, look, I give him credit for this. He's not trying to build uh, a, a, a better mouse. You know, he's building a whole new, he's a whole new ecosystem. He's taking on some really large problems. He's, 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 you know, electric cars and, uh, going to space. I mean, he picks difficult things to do. So, um, you know, so he shoots for the sky for sure. And, and from time to time he misses, but, uh, he's, 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 he's become a bit of a media darling. And, and of course, I'm distrustful of the media. And when the media is promoting him, it makes me wonder why they're promoting him. I get a little Richard Branson vibe from him and that's not maybe the best vibe to get. Um, so I I'm cautiously, I'm cautiously optimistic about Elon Musk. I think, I feel like he could do some great things, but I also am not naive to, uh, to where he comes from and who his connections are with, because he, you know, he knows some of the, he knows some of the worst people. You, you don't get a picture of you with Glenn Maxwell for nothing. You know what I mean? So what does it mean for free speech at Twitter then this 9.2% uh, stake? And will he bring Donald Trump back onto the platform? Well, it's an interesting thing. What it means for free speech is that it could get better. But I don't know that it necessarily will. I'd like to see, you know, the problems that um, the problems that that Elon Musk has with Twitter is content moderation and free speech. You know, what what how you set that algorithm to detect certain content and just minimize it or deplatform it altogether, and how you do that with also with people. So we've watched certain 
you know, storylines come out and conservative viewpoints be completely silenced, maybe not kicked off the platform altogether, but just set at a, at a rate that nobody sees it. Uh, very few people see it. So w- with the ability to silo that information and keep it from spreading to, to the rest of the platform, you create the perception that that voice isn't even there. And that the only voice or that everybody's everybody's in agreement that we all feel this way, the, the way the liberal media feels. And the only reason why we've come to that conclusion is because all we ever see are people saying, we agree with this. We agree with this. So to the casual observer on Twitter, you may be led to believe that there's on, there's really only one opinion on this, but that's not reality. And reality is that there's multiple opinions on this. And when they silence the conservatives, it doesn't, it, frankly, it doesn't do, it doesn't do the platform itself any good. You can still mute people. You know, you can, if you don't want to hear the Donald Trump or whoever, you can mute these people. You can make it, you can curate your own feed so that you never have to interact with them. But that's, that's not the point. The point is they're trying to get you to feel a certain way and they're using these social media platforms in order to do that. So if Elon Musk comes around and he's known to be uh, interested in the in in free speech and the Twitter current employees start to freak out and panic. Well, what does that say about them? What are you so worried about that? He's going to bring free speech back and that bothers you. (laughs) Well, let's examine your your uh, thoughts and beliefs then, because if you're. If you're opinion on something is so easily destroyed by the other side, hearing the other side's opinion on it, then maybe your opinion is garbage. Maybe you're, maybe it's trash. And I think that with what the loony left, not the, not just liberal people, but the hardcore left, their ideas are so ridiculous and nonsensical that they don't stand up to scrutiny from people that want to challenge it. So they've been given this sort of safe space uh, because the people that would challenge them have been silenced or, or flat out deplatformed. So it's allowing this, the insanity of the loony left to grow unchecked because there's nobody there to push back against it. So I would love to see Elon Musk come in and do something about that. Uh, it, it reinstalling Donald Trump, you know, as a symbolic gesture, why not? Why not? I mean, I, I like I, I'm no fan of the guy, but like I said, if you don't want to hear him, you can mute him. But let's have some fun, Sean. Let's bring it, him back. It would be the best thing to do uh, in the interest of the shareholders because he he would get so much more engagement going on Twitter and publicity. All right. So if democracy is the road to tyranny, as you call it, the loony left liberal media is that has that become a symptom of totalitarianism? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they want this. What's happening in America right now is that we're under attack from a variety of, of uh, fronts. One of them is culturally. And, and there is this uh, cultural Marxism is the best way to describe it. It's this destruction. They don't build anything. It's a destruction of the current paradigm, destruction of the family, destruction of of conservative values. I'm I'm sort of in the middle. I don't really care. I mean, I'm not really conservative or super liberal, but I, you notice that there is a destruction of anything family related in the United States last summer. 
in the House of Representatives, they 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 changed the rules of the House where that wouldn't affect us really it, because we don't work there. But they they changed the rules of the House so that you can no longer refer to about thirty different. Uh, terms: mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, nephew. All every word that you would use to describe the family is banned in the House of Representatives in the United States as of the summer of 2021. So now I ask you, why? Why? Why can't we talk about family? Well, you can't talk about if you really want to destroy a country from the inside. It soften it up. You destroy it socially. The, the, the fabric of society is the family. If you want to take out the family, what better way than to remove the words that are used to describe the family? And so we see this happening in a variety of places. Social media is one of them. Mainstream media is another one. Uh, the, 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 the invention of these pronouns that don't make any sense. The, the, you know, not everybody's a, a boy or a girl and now there's, you know, we have to have a third bathroom or we have to have 18,000 genders, or you can change your gender after recess. And, and we have, you know, all of this stuff in and of itself isn't enough, but, but compiled together, it starts to change the culture of the country. In America, the culture of America is changing. And it's changing because of the media. The media is making this happen. They're promoting and elevating insanity, like woke story time and all of this stuff. And they're suppressing people that say, hey, listen, I'm parent. I should have the say in what is taught to my students. You guys don't get to talk about sexuality with my, with my kindergartner. And, and that, that's, that's inappropriate. And, and you don't, and you certainly don't get to have those conversations behind closed doors, telling the kids not to tell their parents. So there should be righteous indignation for this. And there is on the, on the right, on the conservative side of things here, but that gets silenced in social media, in the mainstream media, they can make it appear as if there's no discussion at all. Like those people don't care. It's totally fine. We're going to, we're going to indoctrinate all these kids. Tranny story time for, for five-year-olds. Oh, everybody's fine with it. If, if they were, if they were upset about it, Sean, clearly you'd be hearing how upset they are. And since you aren't hearing it, they must not be upset. No, you're not hearing it because they're being silenced. They're definitely upset. They're screaming their brains out, but nobody hears it because the social media algorithms have set it up in a way so that they don't reach people. So that's that's what's at stake here. I mean, it's it's not just about Elon Musk buying a bunch of stock in a company and then being, you know, kind of funny online and asking it if we should take the W out of Twitter, you know. <sighs> that's fun and whatever. But but there's more at stake here. It it goes back to uh to the, the role of free speech and who the arbiter of free speech should be. And currently right now it's being set up by tech oligarchs. And I think that that's probably a really bad idea. So if free speech is guaranteed under the constitution, isn't the arbiter of free speech, the constitution and the Supreme court and how has entities like Twitter circumvented the constitution? Uh, the, the the constitution doesn't mean anything in in the united states anymore it's 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 written in pencil and, and the supreme court we just nominated a woman to the supreme court who couldn't tell you what a woman is so it's it's the whole i mean i feel like sometimes if i get real quiet 
I feel like I can hear the faint sound of circus music playing in my ears because this entire country has turned into clown world and we have Supreme Court justice nominees or now now Supreme Court justices that are trying to argue that they don't know what a woman is. I got to pull out your driver's license. What does it say on your driver's license? Man. man or woman <laughs> solve the problem right there so but those but and and it's funny and it's kind of frustrating but it, it's funny and weird and and but it but ultimately it's going to matter because they're going to rule on some cases that 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 are a big deal that will impact um the united states of america they will the supreme court will make decisions on that and one of the people making a decision on that will be somebody that doesn't know if she's a woman or not. And I find that to be like, I get it. If you're mentally ill, you know, people will be nice to you and everything. And, you know, okay, all right, that's right. Let's, oh, tell me about, oh, that's good. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let's get, let's get this person the help that they need. When I see this person, when I see uh, Kintaji Brown Jackson or Jackson Brown, whatever, uh, coming up for the nominee for the Supreme court, talking about not understanding the difference between man and woman. I just go, let's not tolerate this anymore. This I'm, I'm done. This, this charade, this performance art, whatever you guys think you're doing, it, it's got to end because now we're getting into serious business where, where the people that are supposed to uphold the constitution don't believe in it. So what's the point of having it if they're not going to enforce it anyway? And free speech, it's like, well, that's sort of an outdated tack. And that's sort of an outdated thing. We're going to need to get past our hang up on free speech. You can just see the headlines now in the Washington Post and the New York Times. We really need to get over our hang up about all having free speech. Who needs free speech anyway? Am I right? You know, these are the, 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 the stories that you're going to start hearing. They're going to start normalizing this slowly and slowly until you until you get a bunch of dumbed down people going, yeah, they're right. We don't need free speech. I don't care. I, I you know, who needs that anyway? And it's like, if you don't have free speech, you wind up going down a real slippery slope. So it's important for us to pay attention to these things. It's more than just Elon Musk coming in and buying a stake in a company. Um, it really is going to be a battleground for what we are allowed to say and who's allowed to hear it. And uh, it's going to get interesting. So in Edward Gibbons, the decline of the Roman empire, he talks about the proliferation of bureaucracy and rules being part of the disintegration of the empire and, and the softening of the empire on its own spoils. Do you see parallels with the West and, and uh, the, the proliferation of, of things such as, fact checkers and, and misinformation and, and bureaucracy here. America's specialty is bureaucracy. <laughs> they, we, you, you, you've been through the system. You understand. Um, we create, we create a system. We create rules for the system. Then we bring in the least capable people to run that system. And then when they fail, instead of getting better people in there, they just add new laws or new regulations or new people or add, add more people. Oh, well, this guy's totally incompetent. He can't do his job. Well, let's add six more of that guy. And then we'll, you know, and so we, we wind up in, in a position where the federal government is completely bloated totally ineffective in doing the things that they set out to do. And of course, yeah, that is the sign 
that you're towards the end of an empire when they start to, um, when they start to, uh, as I reach for my book, Controlled Demolition of the American Empire, uh, yeah, you 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 get the feeling that we're 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 towards the tail end of of the empire when things like we're arguing about whether there's seventy four or seventy six different genders, or we've got a bureaucracy, a massive bureaucracy that can't seem to get anything done. We have uh, the ability to ship without any sort of vote over a billion dollars to Ukraine. Uh, but we still can't fix the water in Flint, Michigan. Uh, we have potholes and all our roads and infrastructure is destroyed, but we're focusing on trying to rebuild the infrastructure in, uh, Afghanistan. It's like, <laughs> this is insanity. So, so it's, I think that people are starting to wake up to the fact that, uh, we are, uh, as George Carlin called it, CTD, circling the drain. That is what he said. I have no stake in this. I'm just watching us circling the drain. I'm sitting in the bleachers and watching it all. It's hard to care about your country when the people that are tasked with running it don't care about it. It's hard to care about, you know, it's, it, it's like, why, why should I care about the school district when the the teachers in the schools don't care about the curriculum either. They're teaching whatever they want. They're teaching this weird woke stuff. Uh, and, and we're supposed to what get on board and, and, and help the help fight for the schools. Why? Why the, the, these things are, are broken. So there's part of me that says, let it break. You know, there is, there's a part of me that says that these inefficiencies need to go away. And that part of the, how you do that is you just let them run their run their course and let this collapse under the weight of their own stupidity. But I, I also recognize that that's going to be really painful for a lot of people. And so I don't want that. I don't want the pain of it. But we're in a system that really needs an, an overhaul uh, deeply because the, we've been talking about this idea of the Constitution and, and, and all the things that it protects but uh, we've let the worst people in the world be in charge of managing it. And we, we wound up where we are right now. So. so instead of complete meltdown, breakage, Schumpeter's creative destruction is the hope in that sometimes things go to extremes and they reverse. And in the case of Elon buying the stake in Twitter, it's symptomatic of the reversal process and that free speech could become more now that he's on the board and in, in fact he could even potentially buy the whole company couldn't he yeah and we'll never we won't really know until we get a couple years down the road and we look back on it and we may look and say well you know that elon moment he really he was doing what we all wished we could do if we had billions of dollars oh yeah well you want to you're going to silence me well i'll tell you what i'm going to buy your company and i'm going to fix it i'm going to do the things you are either unwilling or unable to do to make your platform better i'm going to do or i'm tired of being silenced i'm tired of the censorship we need free speech back well maybe we look back on it and elon is is the um, is that point in time where we say well that's kind of when it started but i don't know I don't know for sure. I hope so because things have to change. The 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 route we're going down right now with the silencing of people is um you know it's it's obviously disgusting. But but I think even the average person is starting to recognize it. You know if you if you're not on social media platforms and you're minding your own business, none of this seems to be happening. The the silencing doesn't really affect you. But 
but if you if you are on it you're what you're you've been watching it for a while you've been watching the censorship get bigger and bigger and bigger and you know where it could be going it could be going to a to a, a place where um you know your social media posts are tied to your social credit score. And if you say bad things about the establishment on your social media post, your score goes down and you wind up getting locked out of going to the grocery store. So, um, so it, we, we have to keep an eye on this. It'd be interesting. It'd be fascinating if Elon Musk, while simultaneously trying to get us to implant brain chips, wound up saving our brains by bringing back free speech. That would be ironic. But uh, if that's how it works, that's how it works. I'll take it. All right, so to the viewers then, we've got about 10 minutes left before we bring Norman Baker in. So this is your opportunity now to ask Charlie questions. However, because we were there was a hack attack on the channel at lunchtime, the chat has been restricted to subscribers only. If you're not subscribed, if you do subscribe to the channel now, you have to wait a minute before you can ask a question. So if you do want to ask a question, you're not subscribed, please subscribe and then ask, we'll just wait a minute to ask the question. But questions are coming in now from the existing subscribers. And we've got one from Hang Tight. Does Charlie believe in NASA? That ties in with Musk, doesn't it, as well? Oh, my! one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> Do I believe in NASA? I believe they exist. Do I believe they're doing good work? No. No. Well, listen, when, when the organization is started by literal Nazis, you're in a bad spot, man. Um, I don't trust NASA at all. I don't trust anything that they do. I think that those people are a bunch of criminals. I think that their stories don't add <laughs> up. I, and I love the idea of going to space and where that takes us and, 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 and the science fiction aspect of it and all of the benefits that we could have to being, um, you know, a multi-planet Terry species. I love all that. I mean, it's, it's very, very interesting to me. I like that Elon Musk is trying to, you know, get involved in SpaceX and all that stuff. I, I I like the privatization part because I I feel like the private you you, you need to I understand it's a big in, undertaking when you're trying to launch rockets into space it costs a lot of money and you need the best and the brightest and all that stuff so it, it I it makes sense that it could it would start off as a government funded program but I but where you're really going to see massive leaps is is in the privatization of space and of course. That opens up a can of worms, too, because much like we just got done talking about the uh, tech companies that are financed by venture capital firms that have that wind up having a say in things. Listen, if you're starting a rocket company and you're taking money from venture capital companies, you're going to have these same people on your board, too. So so again, in a in a in a vacuum, in the vacuum of space, I like the idea of, of us going and privatizing that and doing more. Uh, but I also recognize that that anytime you're exploring something like that, you're going to have some of the worst people involved in it behind the scenes trying to uh, manipulate and manage that. So, so Scott has brought an interesting subject up with a bit of a silly question: Was Charlie in the CIA? Yep. Obviously, he wasn't. But was this not. brings us this brings us to the role of the CIA in the modern tech era. How do you think the role of the CIA has changed? Well, um, the role of CIA has changed quite a bit in that they've gone a little bit more covert in, in, in the, in the way that they've, uh, financed companies instead of being so, you know, silently or quietly financing, uh, these companies in, instead of being outright 
involved in it. Like as a prime example, Keyhole technology was started by the CIA using their satellites. That's that service was amazing. I remember using it in the late nineties um, and, and being able to zoom in and see all these, you know, see the world in a way you'd never seen it before. But Google bought that and that's Google maps. That's Google earth. That's, that's your mapping system is run is comes from a program that was started by the CIA. Hmm. So they're involved in your life, whether you know it or not. And they were able to do that. Uh, at least, you know, starting from, uh, 1999, when, when they launched in Qtel, they're able to do that covertly by just spreading a little bit of money around into these different companies that are coming up. And they also have the they, they're not burdened by needing to turn a profit. In fact, they're part of what makes InQtel unique is that they don't they don't care if they make money on it. I mean, obviously, if they do, they do. But but if they don't, that's okay too. So they can take flyers on some companies that don't really look like they're going to pencil out just so that they've got money in them, so they can control them. Maybe they steer them out of the way. Maybe they steer them into into prominence. So there's a lot of uh, different ways that the that the Central Intelligence Agency can be involved and they are so yeah we've interviewed some ex-ci guys on ci guys on the channel as well and uh, some of them talked about cyber security mm -hmm. what, what what do you think about cyber security and do you think that's all infiltrated by intelligence that's that's israel i mean they're they're deeply involved we gotta we got yeah we gotta stay off that that subject i know <laughs> i know yeah, yeah. yeah but that but but yeah that's look cyber security is important you need to have you need to have smart guys doing that, and there's a role for it. There's absolutely a role. I'm just I'm um, reading uh, and interviewing the author of John McAfee's autobiography next week, oh, and wow. so I'm about done with that book right now. And which, so I'm, which, I'm who's sort of, that? Is that the guy we had on the other week? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, he's fantastic, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to him in a couple of days, but he, yeah. I've got the book. Obviously, that's right. Yeah, um, to to so I've got cybersecurity on the mind, you know, because <laughs> from reading from reading that book about that. So there's a need for that for sure. But like anything, like you got to make sure those are the good guys, because if the if you've got the bad guys in cybersecurity, then then you then you've got big big problems. And and so again, look at who's running cybersecurity and, and where they're getting their money, where they're based, and and are they taking uh, are they partners with the World Economic Forum? Because if they are, then they're then that what you think is security is going to be very different uh, than reality. Brilliant, Charlie. It's always a great pleasure. Do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you and get your books? Sure. Yeah, my. My podcast, Macroaggressions, is available in audio format wherever podcasts are served and in video format on Rockfin, Odyssey, David Icke's platform, Iconic, and also Band.Video. You can go to my website, theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com, where I think I've got just about everything there. You can buy the my books in digital format there through PayPal. Uh, but if you like paperback, there's three books available on Amazon, The Octopus of Global Control, the Controlled Demolition of the American Empire that I wrote with Jeff Berwick and Hypocrisy, Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards. And as always, thank you, Sean, for having me on. I know that it's a, you know, too much bold beautifulness might be, <laughs> might might get the, might get the censors out, but you, that's you all need, right. You need to get your ass over to London so we could go raving at Ministry of Sound or Fabric. <laughs> yeah man let's do it <laughs> <laughs> you, you, uh, what was the last time you were out in london charlie 
2019. Okay. Well, let, let, let us know next time. Definitely. I will. I, I, I swung yeah. through. I did Renegade Inc. over um, for, for RT um, and uh, and did all the touristy stuff and wound up in Hampshire, too, for a couple nights. Would so. love to see you in person and give you a big hug. So, yeah, definitely keep Likewise. it <laughs> Thank you, brother. Take care, man. Thanks, Thanks again. Cheers. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Yes, Charlie has been one of the longest-running guests on the channel. He's always a viewer favorite, like Ryan D. And his links will be in the description box. You know, it's very important that we support our guests. It incentivizes them to come on. And if you've not subbed to the channel, please sub. It does enable us to do more and it will enable you to join the chat <laughs> because the hackers, the hack attack at lunchtime. Looks like Andrew is, um, just putting on his anti-head shine. Let's should I bring him in? Oh, bringing him in. Well, look at that. <laughs> See how he treats me off camera, guys. Did I thought I could catch, get away with it. Did you catch him gesticulating? Do you see what I have to put up to? Up, up with, up with, up with. Yeah. I could see. I could see you putting me in. I thought I'll just quickly put the fingers up at this fella. <laughs> but that's you wouldn't have it any other way, would you? You know about my disdain for authority figures, and you are a, an authority figure. I just um, love being picked on. Nothing like some healthy banter. Let's we see if there's been any, any updates on Johnny De the Johnny Depp story in the last hour as we wait for Norman. Oh, I think I just heard Norman pop in. Norman did pop in. So I'm going to pop out and leave it to you, Andrew. Is that your night, the end of your night? We will see. <laughs> we will indeed. Everything is everything's like sneaky somehow, isn't it? Everything's a thing. I may be back at the end, I may not. <laughs> okay, well... I'll stick, uh, stick Norman in. Norman, how you doing, mate? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, good. Good. Always good to see your face. Um, what's going on in your life? <laughs> a lot of work, actually. So I'm not short of things to do. Mm, a lot of transport too much stuff. Transport stuff? Yeah, I do two and a half days a week for the campaign for better transport, amongst other things. Ah, interesting. You know, I spoke on my channel, I spoke recently with, uh, do you know who Rory Sutherland is? No, another name. Who is it? Oh, he's like the head of Ogilvy or some marketing or something. But he's written this book about uh, how to improve transport and all, all stuff about uh, you know we focus too much on getting to places on time and not on the, the actual enjoyment of of commuters and stuff. Well, that's absolutely true. And last year, um, I challenged Paul Tui, my colleague at the uh, campaign for better transport, to a, a race between London and Glasgow. Uh, mm. From Piccadilly Circus to uh, Queen's Queen Square, can't remember the name of the place, George Square in Glasgow, and I took the train and he took the plane, and he arrived only two minutes before me, genuine race, only two minutes before me because of all the hassle at airports and everything else, and he had no time to do anything apart from standing in queues and sit between two people on the plane. I had a fantastic journey on on the train up four hours to Glasgow, and got a lot of, lot of reading, a lot of work done. So. Absolutely, yeah. it's much more pleasant by rail. And from business point of view, you got four hours work done if you want to. That's what it is. That's what it is. But he was saying we still we still need to make it even nicer for people. Some trains don't have the backs of the seats, you know, the, the tables and things like that when they should. He thinks. Yeah, no, some of the some of the seating arrangements aren't great on trains, and also, I mean, some of the um, the, the Thameslink trains from Brighton, are, the seats are like ironing boards. Yeah. 
that's the thing. Everyone thought they were coming in here to learn about Savile, and they're getting talked about about trains. This is what well, we there's get a, from this show. There's, there's a link, Andrew, because Jimmy Savile was um, yeah. used by British Rail in the 1980s to advertise British Rail, and he was the one who did um, the adverts. But this is the age of the train, and all those things. Is there um, any way but, he wasn't? But interestingly, he was dropped by yeah. British Rail in the 1980s, late 80s, and I know this from the. Uh, head legal guy, British Rail, he was dropped by British Rail because they had been told at that point, back in the 80s, that he was, uh, let's put it gently, conducting himself in an inappropriate way with dead bodies in the mortuary at Stoke Mandeville. Get out. Because that wasn't in the documentary about the dead bodies. I was waiting for that to pop up and it didn't. Well, I don't know why it didn't. But I mean, point is that British Rail knew about him in the 1980s and dropped him. The BBC knew about him because he was kept well away from children in need. And yet... He was allowed to carry on uh, with Prince Charles's encouragement until his death. Is there is this something that you know is, is a very controversial thing to even talk about now? But there was a different uh, attitude towards what we now would call paedophilia um, back then, wasn't there? There was. Um, there was. There was an attitude which Radio One DJs and others shared that uh, girls of fourteen and fifteen were were a fair game. Not only that, I mean, they would queue up at the top of the Pops in, in Manchester where it was filmed and, and try and collar people, 14 to 15-year-old girls, try and collar people on the way out. I mean, John Peel and people. And it was, a different, it was a different feel. There was a song which I play on my blues show sometimes called Good Morning Little School Girl, which is actually outrageous in terms of um, the lyrics now, but it was quite commonplace. But that's very different to what Jimmy Savile was doing. I mean, Jimmy Savile was not just doing that. He was, he was creepy beyond belief. Yeah, yeah, it was it was disgusting stuff. But it is a it is something that isn't being mentioned enough in this. And you see, like these images, the videos. I was thinking this when I watched the documentary. You see these videos. It's like, look, he's with Mick Jagger. Uh, it, you know, Mick Jagger's reputation is stained from being with Jimmy Savile. But from from what I gather, Jimmy Savile, uh, obviously not the same level. But but Mick Jagger was also sleeping around a fourteen year old, fifteen year old guy. I don't want to get done for libel or anything, but I think that might be a well established fact, or at least I, I don't know if that's true or not. But what I do know is, I, the other day I watched on on. YouTube, uh, a 1968 episode of Top of the Pops, and unlike the ones for the BBC shows, where all the dodgy DJs have been eliminated, uh, and you're left with Tony Blackburn or someone, uh, the only yeah. DJ left, um, this was a one hosted by Jimmy Savile, and watching right away through is quite interesting, because what Jimmy Savile did at one point was say, you know, I'm looking at the cameraman, he's got his camera focused on these nice legs this girl has got. I mean, he actually said that, you know, live on the programme. It's quite extraordinary what they, what they said in those days. And it was regarded as kind of normal. I mean, so all that was normal and and in a way that was, was exploitative for women it wouldn't be allowed nowadays. But what was not normal, of course, was the other thing Jimmy Savile was doing, which were quite outrageous. Yeah. Why do you think they didn't include the necrophilia stuff in the documentary? Is it just that it's not been confirmed enough? Well, I mean, it has been confirmed, I think, by, by, by various people. I don't know why he didn't include it. Perhaps it was a matter of taste. Perhaps he thought he made the point without having to go into that detail. Yeah, it's a bit much when you're eating your dinner, isn't it? Yeah. Bloody hell. What were your thoughts then? What, I presume you watched it. Did you watch it? The, I haven't watched it. No, I haven't watched it. Well, just, I've just read reviews of it. But, I mean, I know the story very well. And I know, clearly, I know the, the link with Prince Charles very well, which is... Which is um, I think what some of the people are picking up on. There was nothing there that I didn't know about. I mean, just for the benefit of, of people who are on this uh, podcast, whatever it's called, are we on a podcast? 
Um, for the benefit, <laughs> you can tell I'm not very technical, competent. Um, for the benefit of anyone who's listening, put it that way, or viewing, um, yeah. you know, Jimmy Savile managed to inveigle himself into Prince Charles's confidence in a way that was quite extraordinary. I mean, to the extent that Prince Charles asked Jimmy Savile for his views on on speeches and, and actually incorporated some of his lines in there. He was a regular visitor at St. James's Palace and had access that very few others outside the royal family did. Uh, he even advised Charles and Diana on their marriage, uh, though on that occasion Jim didn't fix it uh, quite clearly. Um, so, I mean, this, this is extraordinary behaviour. Now, people warned Prince Charles, you know, this guy is not altogether reliable. He's a bit creepy. And Charles took that to be that they were just jealous of him. And, and paid no attention to them. And he carried on. He, he gave him a, uh, a gift. What would he give him a gift of? Um, a box of cigars and some and a pair of couplings, I think, for his birthday. He went to his house uh, in Yorkshire to have dinner with them. He actually, Charles went there to dinner with them at Jimmy Savile's house. And when he died, it was, it was Charles and Camilla who led the tributes to Jimmy Savile. So when he was up to his neck at it, now no one's suggesting, I'm not suggesting that Prince Charles uh, wasn't any way associated with what Jimmy Savile was doing. He wasn't. And and I don't believe he thought it was true. But what it did show was Prince Charles's very, very poor judgment that he could um, embrace this man in that way. It wasn't the only example. He also embraced the former Bishop of Lewis in my part of the world. Uh, and the Bishop of Lewis uh, had taken a police caution in 1993 for... Uh, well, for whipping a 17-year-old uh, and, and otherwise engaging in un, unwelcome activities with someone of a minor age. And and Prince Charles took the view that um, he should he should express sympathy with the bishop, not with a 17-year-old, who the 17-year-old he called a horrid man um, after, the, after the bishop had admitted the criminal offence. Uh, and, of course, what happened eventually was that the, um, the 17-year-old committed suicide. So, you know, Prince Charles really ought to sum it out on his conscience. But, you know, so that's a poor judgment. He's taken poor judgment by having Kenneth Lay. He got very close to Kenneth Lay of Enron fame. And Enron, the guy was clearly used to Prince Charles to get some credibility when Enron was going down the pan. Um, so he probably kept Enron alive for a couple of years. He was close to him. He went to have lunch with him in Florida, I think it was, certainly in the States. He was very close to this Turkish billionaire, Kem Uzan. He was the one who was subsequently found guilty of fraud-related offences and sentenced to prison in the US. So Charles' sense of judgment as to who he's with is very, very poor indeed. And, you know, for someone who's heir to the throne, that's really quite worrying. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's a judgment in terms of who he's seen being out with, and there's also just your inherent uh, morality. Uh, so, so that's, I guess, why I, I was asking that at the beginning. I suppose I'm wondering what... I guess people who were born a bit later. I mean, I was born in '89. I didn't know who Jimmy Savile was until I saw him in Big Brother uh, at one point. Yeah. So it was a whole before my time. Was it just a totally different view? And society has changed unrecognisably now. Because because surely Charles would have been advised by someone like this guy is abusing children. Or what, he, well, was he was not, advised, and he, yeah. and he put it down to jealousy. I mean, that's the fact of the matter. But yes, society has changed enormously. I mean, let's be quite clear. I mean, for example, it was illegal to be gay until 1967. I mean, that's really quite recent in people's lifetime. Um, uh, and certainly you couldn't get elected to public office if you were gay until, really, until the 1990s. The first one was Chris Smith, the Labour MP, who came out. And he came out in a... In a I'm not criticising him, he, he was very brave. But he came out in a safe Labour seat. 
it isn't so you can get away with it but i mean you know these things are quite recent in terms of public opinion changing the attitude towards women you only need to look at one of the early bond films to see how sean connery treated women in the bond films in the 60s and it's excruciating i sat down and watched i think it was um thunderball with my daughter and it was it was hugely embarrassing he basically james bond in the film basically raped, raped this woman you know and that was regarded as okay and but jimmy savile going back to the 60s when he was on top of the pops I mean, he was regarded as, as, as a kind of larger-than-life figure, having a personality, which he did, I suppose, uh, in a way that some of the other ones didn't. And, and people like the Beatles flocked to him because he had a big cigar and he had a funny hairdo and he, he talked, you know, he made jokes and he was quite entertaining in that sense. So you can see how he managed to inveigle his way into the establishment. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I guess we look, we do watch those like the documentary and all the footage we watch it now with our own morals of today so all the bits of him sort of pinching people and, and people going how could they not have known but i think a lot of people were at, up to that it's just the stuff that he did obviously went far beyond anything even probably yeah. far beyond anything we know now right and one of your commentators uh, nicola in the chat says he did so much for charity people like to turn a blind eye or didn't didn't want to become involved that's right jimmy savile himself saw his charity act as a shield uh, against investigation. He was doing a lot, he did raise a lot of money for charity. And he saw that as a defense, I suppose. In fact, he said at one point publicly that his charity work he hoped that would be taken into account in the ledger when he, you know, when he died. Yeah. Uh by by, you know, whoever it was in heaven would take account of that, you know, weighing up his good acts and his bad acts. So, you know, he's a complicated complex character. Yeah. A Catholic who who died crossing his fingers. Quite possibly, I don't know. Um, when Scott says the Beatles hung out with Savile, I don't think they really hung out with Savile, but I mean, it, it, clearly he was introducing them on programs like Top of the Pops, and they regarded him as a bit of a bit of fun. But I don't think they, they, they hung out with them. Yeah, there were clips of him, you know, as you say, probably introducing them before a show or something. Clips of Jimmy with of the Stones with Elvis Presley. There was just yeah. no limit to the the people he managed to get in with. It's insane. No. Well, I mean, if you look at, look at you know, taking you back to a time before you were born, Andrew, if you look back to the DJs of the 1960s, I mean, a lot of them were kind of hangovers from the 1950s, people like Pete Murray, um, who were, you know, pretty dead, pretty dead and boring, to be perfectly frank with you. And the other DJs came along in 67 from, from um, the pirate stations. People like John Peel and Tony Blackburn and so on came from the pirate stations. But in the meantime, the early 60s, when when music had taken off, the Beatles and Stones had taken off, but the BBC hadn't caught up with it. And they were still trying to, um, you know, shovel it away on, on what was called a light programme before Radio 1 existed. Um, you know, the DJs then, uh, there were really only two who were, I think, um, you know, kind of modern in that way. One was Jimmy Savile, and the other was Alan Freeman. And the rest of them were pretty dull. Mm. And that's part of his his uh, popularity, his enduring popularity up, till, up until he... He died, really. Do people really? Did they know towards the end? Was it like public opinion? Did everyone know in the last few years of Savile, or, or not at all until he died? I, I don't think everybody knew, but I mean, a lot of people knew, and and certainly to say BBC children need knew, they kept him well away from that. So enough people knew. So this is why I say, you know, coming back to someone like David Kelly, you know, people say, oh, it couldn't possibly be anything suspicious because we would have known about it. Well, no, I'm sorry, you know, people knew about Jimmy Savile for decades. And nothing came out. A whole lot of people knew about Jimmy Savile. Nothing came out. You know, you take Jonathan King, who's also been found guilty, another pop star, found guilty of um, curb trolling. Um, 
you know, we, you know, I was in the music business in the, in the late seventies, early early eighties, and we all knew about Jonathan King driving up the Edgeware Road in his Rolls Royce at five miles an hour, looking for boys. We all knew that. You know, these things were common knowledge. Hmm. Okay, I don't know who that person is. Is that do we have to say Jonathan King? About that? Well, he was he was a, he was a he had one hit under his own name, which was Everyone's Gone to the Moon. He then produced a whole lot of other hits, and he had a, a number of hits himself under pseudonyms. And he was quite a mover in, in, the, in the music business for about 10 years. Hmm. There's, a, there's a clip um, that I was surprised by in the documentary of Jimmy Savile hanging out with Gary Glitter, who obviously was, uh, you know, he's, I guess he's in prison now, is he, for crimes in time? I, I think he's in prison, or he certainly has been. But, I mean, Gary Glitter is, um, is someone who probably took that, that attitude of laissez-faire to extremes, I think. Um, you know, the attitude of 15-year-old girls hanging around. I mean, I think he took that to extremes himself, and that's why he, he went too far, probably, in terms of even the morals of the day, he went too far. Um, and he used to sing these songs, um, you know, which were, um, you know, for me, um, and many people in my generation, we thought you know, it was all tongue-in-cheek. It was all, you know, English joking about themselves. You know, I'm the leader of the gang. I put the bang in gang and all that sort of stuff. He just thought it was a joke. Uh, actually, it turned out to be probably quite true. It's pretty quite oh, literal. Man. Yeah, you were you were had. I think. I mean, Iggy Pop did that with his. He he wrote a song about a thirteen-year-old or something. Yes, but then again, you know, it's a matter of geography because um, you know the age of consent in different countries are different. I mean, I think in Italy, from memory, it's fifteen. Um, so you know, it's it's, it's paedophilia over here, and it's legal in Italy. Jerry Lee Lewis, famously. Yeah. Uh, you know Jerry Lee Lewis, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. Was he? Did he marry uh, some? You'll tell me. He married someone who was either twelve or thirteen, quite legally, in one of the states. <sighs> it's just crazy, isn't it? And isn't it, and what does that say about humanity? Actually, you know, the the society and the laws that we live with seem to shape our moralities, and then the moralities obviously change with the society. And now the, you know, now the royals, I mean, not that I'm, you know, even the Savile stuff was bad even back then, of course. But does this look really bad on the royals today? Should you expect comment from Charles, for example? I mean, he won't, will he? Well, look, I mean, first of all, the thing to say is morality is a branch of geography, um, because what's legal in some countries is illegal in others. It's also a branch of history. If you look back, the attitude towards homosexuality was totally different in Roman and Greek times when anything went. And uh, it's, it's now very tolerant, in my view, rightly now, but it wasn't tolerant for most of the 20th century and certainly not in Victorian times, you know, visit, just look at Oscar Wilde being locked up in jail for what he was doing. So, you know, you have to look at things in a historical and geographical context, and there's no absolute truth, I don't think, in these matters. As far as Charles is concerned, you know, he needs to, you know, man up, if I can use a sexist term, uh, and take responsibility for some things. You know, this business with um, Michael Fawcett, you'll, you'll be aware, I think, that I've reported Charles to the Metropolitan Police for what I believe has been an offence under the 1925 Honours Act when he was selling honours. And that matter is being investigated by the police now. Um, but what Charles is doing is saying, oh, I didn't do anything about it, and it's someone else's responsibility. And this happens every time. When he gets something wrong, he then says, not me, Gov. Nothing about it is one of my minions, and they take the rap for it. You know, if he's got any decency, he's owed up to it himself. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. But will he? No, of course he won't, as long as someone else is prepared to be the fall guy. You know, Michael Forsyth has resigned three, is it three times now he's resigned? Three times. He resigned once over uh, 
alleged bullying of staff, uh, once over selling gifts that had been given to Prince Charles, and now he's resigned over this business of uh, allegedly selling honours. Um, you know, there comes a point when he's taken back each time. So what happens if he gets the sack, he takes the, he takes the blame. He's a poor guy. And then after a decent interval, or an indecent interval, Charles brings him back by the back door. That's the deal. Do the royal family ever, has there ever been an occasion where they've apologised for their behaviour? No, no, I can't think of one. I mean, you know, as I say in my book, quick plug for the book, as I say in my book... Um, What's the book called? It's called, And What Do You Do? What the Royal Family <laughs> Don't Want You To Know. And, um, yeah, I, what, what I say in my book is is that whenever something bad about the royals is exposed, they'll try and cover it up. They'll try and get friendly journalists to report it in the way they want to report it. Yeah. Um, and they won't ever cure the problem. What they will do is paint over rotten wood. That's what they always do. They paint over rotten wood. Yeah, even Andrew didn't at any point. I guess apologising would be an admission of guilt. Well, I mean, we're not yes, supposed to talk I mean, about him, are we? I've just remembered we're not supposed to talk about him. Sorry, aren't we? That. Why not? I don't think we're supposed to. But I mean, that's so far. I've just said my own name, so that's okay. Um, I, I happen to share the the name, but not the legacy. Um, I don't think. But uh, let's should we should we get on to? Well, I, want to I want to know why you're not supposed to talk about him. Oh, well, hmm, maybe Ash will explain it to me in a message in a second. Ash, let me know what the reason is. I think it is it's just screaming, no, that person's name. I didn't say the, the prince bit. I just said my own name. But um, because I guess it's because, oh, I don't know. Maybe he'll explain it to me. It's all about YouTube and they, they take you down. And, uh, okay. and I, don't know what, I don't know what the reason. You'll have to probably in private maybe message Sean or Ash to ask them all about it. Well, it's what, to I, do, yeah. Yeah. what I could do is just read out a chapter of my book, which has all been cleared by libel lawyers. Anyway. Sean, won't, Sean won't have it. Sean will not have it. Um, no, but but yeah. Well, you know what? Does this make the royals look bad now? Is it going to change the, the Savile stuff? I mean, is it going to change public opinion of them, I, or is it just yet another thing? I don't think it makes the royals look bad. I think it makes Charles look um, naive and a man of poor judgment, and okay. that's quite serious. But you know, things are things are adding up with Charles. I mean, he's been Prince of Wales for a long time, so it's not surprising. But here we got what's on the charge sheet. We've got the sacrificing minions. We've got the potential involvement in the uh, uh, selling of honours, so he denies any involvement himself. But I, I think there's a case there for the police, which are looking at the case to whether he's been involved or not. There's the, there's the uh, misuse of his position to um, try to influence public policy, which was exposed by The Guardian, when he reported on the so-called spider letters. There's the efforts he's made to increase the amount of money coming to the public, from the public purse to the royals by the, by the lobbying he made for the change to the civil list arrangements. There's a lobbying he made to try and exclude the royal family entirely from the Freedom of Information Act. There's a dubious nature of the Duchy of Cornwall, whereby he calls it private when it suits him and public when it suits him, depending on the tax arrangements which are there. And of course, People haven't forgotten that he was in a relationship with Camilla Parker Bowles as he was walking Princess Diana up the aisle. So there's a lot that Charles has on his... I probably haven't, there's probably other things I've forgotten. There's a lot on his charge sheet, which is really quite serious. And I think, and you know, I'm not particularly monarchist, as you know, but I mean, if you look at the Queen's charge sheet, there's a lot less on her charge sheet than there is on Charles's. And, you know, he doesn't come to the throne. He becomes the throne. He doesn't come to the throne with a clean piece of paper. And that itself is potentially damaging for the royal family.
there's there's something about the Queen, and I want to say uh, the, the word majestic was going to come to mind, but I mean that's obviously that comes from her in the first place, majesty and majestic. You know, of course that's what she's supposed to be, but uh, she she doesn't seem to get involved or embroiled in any of these things. Just she just keeps mum, doesn't she? And then is it just blokes? Is it blokes? Whether the guy we can't mention or Charles, just blokey, aren't they? Just, just they can't keep their their face out of everything. Well. Uh... The royal, the royal family is very conservative by nature. Um, small C conservative, perhaps big C as well, actually. And I read you know, the chapter of my book about their political views, and most of them are pretty right wing. Charles, actually, is probably the least right wing of the whole lot of them, as a matter of fact. He's probably a kind of soggy, soft Tory, soggy liberal type person on that cusp of things in the middle. But, um, you know, the, the institution itself is terribly, terribly conservative. It maintains these things, the honour system. I mean, it maintains honours which are ludicrous. You know, order the guard and all this sort of stuff. You know, it's created centuries ago. I mean, why are they all still there? You know, I mean, keeper of the belfry or something. You know, all these bloody ridiculous titles. That's not one that's made that one up actually. But you know, they're all still they're all still there. Why are they still there? Why is it that we've still got you know the same arrangements where Charles, when he was a child was having to back out of the room when he spoke to his mum, even like like the emperor of China. And he expects yeah. some of his servants to do the same thing. You know, they haven't moved on. I mean, the last imperial monarchy, all the other monarchies are updated, and they're now part of the democratic system in Europe. Our monarchy hasn't updated. And part of that is they don't like women. Well, they've had to put up with the queen because she's in charge of the royal family, in a sense. I mean, she's come to the throne. They can't do much about that. But the other women who've been uh, anyway... Um, you know, prepared to stand up for their own personalities. That isn't very popular. Diana was basically squeezed out. Fergie wasn't popular because she was like she was. And Meghan wasn't popular because she was in her own mind independent and was bright. They don't like that. They don't fit into the box. Well, you know, they've had a couple of chances recently with Diana and Meghan to modernise. Here were gifts to make them modernise. And rather than take the gifts and say thank you very much, they've just got rid of the gifts and shut the door again. Yeah. Well, we spoke about this last time, I think, because I was saying the thing is, I think they realise, and I know what you're saying about the other countries' monarchies and how that sort of worked to make them a little bit more modern, but once once they've lost the traditional conservative support, that isn't that that's it? Who who else? If they're if they're going to become modern, they should really just abolish themselves. That's what that's that would be modern, wouldn't it? Well, it would be very modern. Um, but you can have a halfway house. I mean, you can have a halfway house whereby, for example, the king of Norway when he comes to the throne, has to take another allegiance to the Constitution and place to uphold democracy. And they become entwined in a democratic process. And you can, and they've also got far less money being raised and given to them and a far narrower family and far more constrained of what they do. So it's possible. And in a way, you could argue that that's OK because you don't have an elected politician as a president. So you could argue that that sort of system might work. And indeed, does that kind of work in Scandinavian countries to a degree? If you want the monarchy, that's the kind of monarchy you ought to have. But, you know, that's not the monarchy we've got. You know, the other the monarchies that were like ours, the Russian Tsar, the Austrian Emperor, the, the German Kaiser, um, the French King, they've all gone. Uh, ours is the last imperial monarchy left. Mm, and for how much longer? Is that a rhetorical question that you're asking me? I'm not sure, you know. It came out rhetorical, and then I thought, oh, I wonder what Norman thinks. <laughs> the, there's been an opinion poll some time ago, about 15 years ago, I think, which asked people, um, did they think there'd be a monarchy in 20 years' time, 50 years' time, 100 years' time, whatever? 
And what it showed was that most people believed that the monarchy was time limited over a long period of time. Now, we've got a real challenge coming up. I said Charles has got a, a, a charge sheet against him. He's also, it's not his fault, but he's accepted an Arian, and people won't regard him as a, as a new broom. They regard him as kind of old fuddy-duddy and a bit weird and yeah. not going to be someone who, who really boosts the monarchy. And he's got taint, he's tainted unlike his mum in the public's eyes. So, and Charles is not a great precedent, is it, as a name for a monarch? If you look at Charles I and Charles II, they didn't do particularly well. So, uh, uh, one, one yeah. hid in a tree. One got, one got, um, uh, you know, one got executed, but uh, and leading to uh, Cromwell and the English Revolution, Charles I. So, I mean, it's not a great precedent. Um, he'll be aware of that, no doubt, because he's aware of these sorts of things. So there's a danger point for the royal family coming up. It's also the case that they're, they're, they're um, you know, they're relying a lot now on William and Kate um, as as the kind of saviors of the monarchy. Well, you know, maybe with maybe they are, maybe they aren't. We'll see. Mm. Kate seems a little bit more like the Queen in that she doesn't seem to say very much. She just does her duty, very du dutiful. Yeah, she's 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 behaving as she's been told to behave as a as a female member of the royal family, which is to say, not very much at all. The smile. And simper, your, simper when your husband's saying something and, and look all lovey-dovey and do-eyed. It's a bit pathetic, really. Yeah, it's how I look at you, Norman. <laughs> well, there we are. Uh, there we are. Boris Johnson, should we get on to him? What's he been in the news for at the moment? Obviously, we know, but people outside the UK might might not. Well, Boris has been... Um, um, I don't know whether to use the word shameful or shameless. Uh, I think it might be both. <laughs> Um, yeah. Boris has been found guilty uh, by the Metropolitan Police of breaking the laws which he himself brought in and applied to the population quite heavily during lockdown about not meeting other people. At the time, uh, at one point, there were only two people you were allowed to see together. And at that stage, he was having a big party in Downing Street for his birthday. And he's been uh, found guilty by the Metropolitan Police and fined. He is the first prime minister in history, I think, to have been convicted of anything, and he's accepted the caution, therefore it's a conviction, to be convicted of something uh, while in office, or even out of office, I think. So it's a bit shabby, to be honest with you, that he's got to that stage. But uh, the Prime Minister being the Prime Minister, he's trying to shuffle it off and say that, um, um, you know, there are other things more important, like Ukraine. And, you know, in a way, what he's done over Ukraine has been quite good, I think. But, you know, the visit to Ukraine... You can't help thinking with with Boris that part of that was about his own image, not about the Ukrainian people who are suffering. And in fact, the front, front cover of Private Eye this week, which I happen to have with me, is superb. It's a picture yeah. of uh, Boris and uh, Zelensky, uh, each of them saying to the other, thank you for coming to my rescue. <laughs> I like that. I mean, I mean, look, we all know there's no way Boris isn't sitting there waking up in the morning going, "Oh, the Ukrainian people, I'm so worried about the Ukrainian people," you know? So, yeah. I'm just not having that. He's delighted that this happened, isn't he? Well, I wouldn't say he's delighted it's happened, but I think he's exploiting it. I mean, but look, I mean, having I'm going to be fair to Boris. I mean, I think the British response in terms of supplying arms and supplying intelligence and so on to the Ukrainians has been good and it's been better than kind of the wishy-washy approach from France and Germany. So I want to give the Prime Minister and the team, particularly the Defence Secretary, credit for that. I mean obviously where we've fallen down is uh, Priti Patel who is really quite ghastly 
and is trying her best to try and stop Ukrainians getting into the country, whatever she says. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just, it's just a mess at the moment, but there's no opposition, really, is there? There hasn't been for decades. No, not really. I mean, it's, it's the way it is. But, I mean, it, the trouble is that when you have poor behaviour and it goes unpunished, and I'm referring to either poor behaviour by the Prime Minister in terms of his parties at number 10, or indeed Prince Patel. Let's not forget she was found guilty of bullying her staff. Yeah. Uh, and when she was found guilty, she did nothing about it. The Prime Minister did nothing about it. And the independent person who found her guilty had to resign. That, that was what happened in that particular occasion. Oh. So once once, he's, once the bar keeps being lowered, it's quite difficult to raise it again. It is a bit like 1984 or something, isn't it? It's Kafkaesque, this this kind of or Catch 22 rather, just like just this, this these mad rules, and then somebody's uh, found out about what someone's done, and then oh, there was bullying, but then they get taken away rather yeah. than Pretty Patel herself. But but there's how do you hold anyone to account? Well, it it needs to be done through Parliament, which isn't always as robust as it should be. It should be done through the judiciary, which normally is quite good although no doubt at some point we'll try and muzzle that as well. And ultimately it's done in a democracy by public votes. And I think the Tories are going to get a, a bit of a shock, well, I mean, not a shock, but they're going to get hammered in the local elections next month. And one mantra that's sticking, and it should stick, is the one that Labour's pushing, which is, is one rule for them, one rule for everybody else. Actually, I think Labour's got that wrong, because actually it's no rules for them and lots of rules for everybody else. Yeah. Well, I guess the one rule would be that there are no rules. Yes, that's a, that's a, a, that's an interesting kind of philosophical question as to whether that's a rule or not. Their rule is you are allowed to go out for you know what it was it was it was parties when they were supposed to be. It was it was down. wine in a suitcase. Let's not forget that we're bringing wine in a suitcase from the off license. Why did they say that? What's why wine in a suitcase? Well, because you can't go to the pub, so they all brought the bottles of wine back, and, and there were so many of them, they had to get a suitcase for them. Just a big bag would just nice. Well, okay, well, yeah, suitcase is a big bag, isn't it? Just, yeah. just a really mad thing. And and I'm not somebody. I don't usually get all sensationalist actually. And when people blame, get angry at someone, I always think, well, you know. And I quite like my leaders to have some sort of rebellious streak, right? We don't trust people typically who obey every rule. But this no. one did did wind me up a bit because obviously you know people couldn't say goodbye to their loved ones who were dying and stuff, and they were out having a party. Well, there's two things about about the party gate. I think the first one that people are concentrating on, understandably, is the one you just raised, and many people do feel very angry and very bitter when they've made sacrifices, often very very personal sacrifices, not going to funerals for relatives and stuff like that, and they feel absolutely trashed by the prime minister and the way he behaved. However, there's another point which which in my in my view is equally important which is this he has lied to parliament he has lied to parliament and if you lie to parliament you have to go that's the traditional remedy you cannot lie to mps on the floor of the house you have to go and he hasn't gone well this is a bit trumpian isn't it it's almost like trump like tore out the rule book and changed it because he was just like nah, i'm not gonna you know, I just just keep saying no, just keep lying. I think yes. they found he had something like twenty thousand lies by the end of his uh, presidency, and I think yes. Trump's just uh, Boris has seen this. Okay, well, what? Because for years, I always used to wonder that when they stepped down, I thought, you know, they don't have to. They stepped down and sort of out, what is it, honour or something? But they don't have to, do they? Who who doesn't have to step down? Uh, uh, so politicians in general, prime ministers and things, they don't have to 
step down for the sake of well, the Well, the Prime Minister's position is, is there by, with the tolerance of his own party, uh, ultimately. There's a majority of Tory MPs, and although Labour and Lib Dems and the SNP have called for him to go, they can't make him go. Hmm. The people who can make him go are Conservative backbenchers. Now, Conservative backbenchers um, may act a, act a morality. Uh, Lord Wolfson, the Justice Minister, resigned today because of the way Boris is behaving. So some of them do behave in that way. Um, however, the majority of Tory MPs will get rid of Boris as and when they conclude he's an electoral liability. If you think he's an electoral asset, they'll support him. It's as simple as that. So he isn't, no, he's going, he's going nowhere before the local elections. Let's be quite clear about that. But if the local elections are a complete disaster, then I think he may go at that point. And let's remember that he's not out of the woods even by his own standards because the Sue Gray report, which is likely to be very damaging, hasn't yet materialised. And more to the point, what the police seem to be doing, and the papers haven't by and large picked up on this, what the, what the police seem to be doing is taking one instance at a time, analysing one instance, and then gives you uh, penalty points, as it were, penalty notices, for those individual instances, which means there are a whole lot more, including, for example, the event in Boris's flat, they haven't got around to looking at yet. So we're faced with the prospect, I think, of Boris getting more and more fines as we go on, on a drip drip basis over the next few weeks. Now, Rishi Sunak's got one today. Rishi Sunak, I feel a bit sorry for in this respect, because I, I, I understand he just popped down, he knew the thing was going on. He went in there and he felt he couldn't leave. So he's got more of an alibi. And I think this is the only one he's been implicated in. But Boris has been implicated in a whole range of them. And I think the police are going to run through one by one and he will get more and more fines with Boris. And at what point is a Tory backbencher is going to say to him or herself or herself, enough's enough? It's just, it's just smacks of stupidity and impulsivity, doesn't it? Because he knew what was going on at the time. The guy, the guy ends up nearly dying of COVID. And, you know, he was going to so many parties and things at a time when we were all being told not to. Yes. Just, where, the guy, he's got this chance of being prime minister. He wanted it his whole life. And he has just been, you know, it's just been controversy after controversy. He couldn't well, just behave for a few years. Andrew Ronsley, who writes a very good column for the, for the Observer, mm. um, rather astutely observed a long time ago that uh, Boris Johnson wants to be prime minister, wanted to be prime minister, to, wanted to become prime minister, and he wants to have been prime minister. He doesn't actually want to be a prime minister. He yes. likes the beginning and the end of it. And I think there's some truth in that. But here's what we bring back to the royal family, because the reason why he behaves the way he does, and the royal family behave in the way they do, most of them, comes down to one word, arrogance. Well, two words, actually. Arrogance and self-entitlement. Because that drives them both. And it'll be un yeah. the undoing of both. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally, totally agree. Um, and, and I've heard that with Boris as well, because I've, I'm, I'm, I'm of the understanding that he, he can't really afford to live on a prime minister's salary at the moment because he's got so many kids and all that. And, and it's not only the royal family, isn't it? Because he can't afford to live in a prime minister's salary, poor man. And Prince Andrew, apparently, can't, can't mention him. £249,000 uh, a year. I was referring to you, giving you a title of Prince, Andrew. You can't uh, yes. £249,000 a year, can you? Yeah, well, try to put my name and and the the what do you call it? Not a pref prefix, a prefix. What do you call that? A prince? Is that a prefix or something? It's a title. Look at, a title. My title. Put my title at the end of the sentence and not next to my my unfortunate. I do look at the comments sometimes, and they're talking about the prince, and they're saying horrible things. And I, for a moment, think they're talking about me. 
and I'm going, I'm like, oh, what sort of horrible thing to say about me? But yes. only half of those are actually aimed at me. Hello, Sean. How are you doing? Who on earth would say horrible things about you, Andrew? You should have a HRH. You're more deserved than some of them. Her Royal Highness. Yes. <laughs> Huge thank you for coming on, Norman. Do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you, support you, and get your book? How do uh, you do? Yes. And what do you do? What you do you do? do? The Royal Family. All the things they don't want you to know that you ought to know because we're in a democracy and you've got a right to know. They don't tell you, so I've told you. See my book available 10 quid from all good bookshops and some rubbish ones as well. And also from um, Amazon and all the other kind of people who make lots of money out of you. And buy, it's probably by buy it back. And if you've really got enthusiasm for me, then I've got two other books, which one is called Against the Grain, which is my political memoir, which gives it a lowdown on the coalition years. And also I've got, um, what's the other one? Oh yeah, The Strange Death of David Kelly about the weapons inspector who um, allegedly committed suicide on Paradown Hill in a way that was simply incredible. And again, the inside story on that one. So there you go, that's my collection. So if you haven't got them all, get yourself a trilogy and enjoy. The David Kelly stuff is absolutely fascinating. I urge people to check that out. Huge thank you for coming on, Norman. We're gonna You're very welcome. close the show now. So you take care and have a great rest of your day. Cheers. Bye. -bye. Thank you, bye-bye. Okay, so there goes Norman. Andrew's had a long four hours. I can see it in his face. <laughs> Just, um, you know what it is, is I've been, um, so you know tomorrow I've got this Lloyd Evans thing, the ex-Jehovah's Witness guy, yeah. Lloyd. So he got in trouble. He's like the ex-Jehovah's Witness guy. Um, and he was in trouble for extramarital affairs with sex workers, which was a big deal because he, his whole thing was talking about uh, you know people who are forced into that kind of industry, and then he was found out for doing it himself. And it's a huge story in the Jehovah's thing. And I got an interview with him. It's like the exclusive interview with him, and it's out tomorrow. And or, you know when like the premiere's up, so the video clips up there, and people have found it, and his his haters have found it. So in between <laughs> coming on here, I've just been looking at the haters who are hating him, but I'm getting dragged into it as well. I was like, who's this interviewer as well? Doesn't even know what he's talking about. So <laughs> stressing me out. But Oh man, you gotta you gotta get used to it. It will continue, it will escalate as your your content gets more viewers on it and it's just part of the growth of the channel and anything else that you're doing that's you know, if you're out there in the public, the haters are gonna come. And the trick is just not to react to them. I'm reading a book right now called Hunting Trolls. And they interview the trolls, they, they get into their minds, they ask them what did they seek, wow. and they say they put different things out. They find people who they think will react. They come at them with multiple accusations, allegations, anything they could say, they make up to try and get a reaction. And they say, as soon as they've got a reaction, they own you. That's the first wow. thing. And then they escalate the campaign. And the most evil ones, their goal is to get people to commit suicide or to get them kicked off the internet. So or, or, to lose their, or to lose their jobs as well. Or to lose their jobs. It's all right to have banter with friendly, uh, you know, people who are constructive, criti constructive critics who are friend have friendly banter with constructive critics. But there are levels of dangerous trolls out there that if you if you respond, they latch onto you and get on your socials, get contact your employers, and they just really try and wreak havoc in people's lives. They're thoroughly evil. So you're saying don't respond at all because some of them won't think they are trolls some of them will think that they're being righteous 
Well, that's the thing. You got you got to be able to uh, ascertain which ones are trolls and dangerous, and which ones are just engaging in healthy debate and banter. Because you can have a laugh with some people, but there's a line that they cross, and you, then you can tell that you know they're trying to destroy you, basically. I get lessons, everyone, from Sean. I'll message him in the day and say, "What shall I do about this life?" like situation and he'll say well from this book i've read and my wisdom, this is this is how you should proceed and uh, i do it it's, it's helping it's help i'm helping my life i'm doing better so is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion then andrew to the viewers this evening um it was a good episode i think or good of, of atwood unleashed we had some good chats i love norman i always love having a little chat with norman he's hilarious really isn't he yeah yeah he's good value so there's that um, yeah, no, that's it, really. What about you? Is there any, any thoughts you have? No, I just thought it, it was really engaging. The chat was lively. And Ash, you know, we've been promising debates. And Ash has promised us a debate next week. He's not specified which topic it's going to be. But I'm going to read you the possibles. So if you could put in the chat which of these possibles you would prefer. <laughs> so the possibles are JFK assassination, believer, and it was a conspiracy versus a non-believer. Flat Earth Part 2, with a flat Earth and non-Earther. Were the moon landings faked? Someone who believes they were fake versus not. Bigfoot, does Bigfoot Sasquatch exist or not? UFOs, ditto. The pyramids, not sure what aspect of the pyramids is going to be debated whether they were built by extraterrestrials perhaps um a savile we had someone contacted us this week who supports savile and says he's innocent would you like to see a savile debunker versus a savile supporter i can't believe there are still Bloody savile supporters hell. out there yeah a royalist like versus ones. royalist versus anti-royalist uh, Kurt Cobain, conspiracy pertaining to his death, and also Tupac Shapur, conspiracies concerning his death. I think, Andrew, out of all them, I think, you know, I mean, they're all absolutely gripping, but I think out of all them, I would love to see the Savile supporter versus the yeah. Savile detractor. Yeah, but it just, it just stands is... out. It just stands the, out, doesn't it? The danger is the Savile guy is just going to get ripped apart. And we did have that with the Flat Earther, didn't we? We had Professor Dave explains he was being quite ad hominem us on, on, the other, on, the, on the Flat Earth, Dave. Um, and sometimes it's good. Sometimes it could be, you know, we wouldn't want something to happen to that person after they've been on this show. So that's what we've got to be careful of. No, and he did take it in good spirit, Flat Earth, yeah. Dave did. And he is a charming, charismatic character. And I, I think that Professor Dave was excellent in his scientific knowledge, but if my uh, audio hadn't malfunctioned, I probably would have tried to interject a bit more when the ad hominem um, terminology had started. So I think I'm just learning. That, that was only my second debate I've moderated. So I'm, I'm just learning now as to when to interject and rein people in. It's, it's a curve for me. And uh, I think you did brilliantly. You know, you, you managed to get more words in than I did, Andrew. <laughs> Which were about seven words in two hours. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it was, in terms of engagement, it was the most engagement yeah. we've ever seen on the channel. And if you look at 
Professor Dave on his channel, it's got way over 100,000 views right now on his channel with millions of subscribers and the engagement there is off the hook as well. So definitely we're going to keep going with these debates. I'd like to see every every week on that would unleash the first hour open with a debate. I think that would be absolute dynamite. We could debate, and, and, couldn't we? And, and, looking, and looking what the viewers are saying now, um, Pyramid, Savile from Verity. We've got uh, Savile from Carrie. We've got Tupac from one person. Uh, Royalist versus Anti-Royalist from Joan. Brendan's on. Tupac's surname before? Tupac Shakur. Okay. I thought JFK. It was Shakur. Two people saying JFK. Three people saying JFK. Cherry Royals, Holly Royals. Ooh, another JFK. Moon Landings and Pyramids. All of them. Savile. So it looks like the top contenders then are Savile, JFK, and the Royals. Yeah. Looking at all the votes that have come in. Yeah. Thank yeah. you guys for what you've put the in the chat. Yeah. Yeah. And people watching uh, who've been with us for four hours tonight, huge thank you. Let us know in the chat what you thought of it. If you were in for the whole thing, more votes coming in for Jimmy Savile, Bigfoot, JFK. Please support Andrew Gold. He has his own amazing channel and his interviews with a eclectic mix of characters as well, some of whom we've had on the channel, some of whom we're trying to get him to nudge over to us. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the debates could be is it was it Jehovah's you said you were doing Jehovah's Jehovah's Witness we could try Jehovah's versus non-Jehovah's yeah that'll be good what, it, that is oh that could be good could get Lloyd on for that you know I bet Joan is saying go with Samuel yeah I think Savile's winning yeah. I think Savile's winning here yeah. um, I might put a poll out on Twitter and YouTube with our lead lead contenders and see what people want but if we could get that Savile person on yeah, uh, but remember, that, this that... is a this is a video entitled Jimmy Savile, so we're going to have a slightly higher proportion of people interested in Savile in this particular video compared to your normal ones. Indeed, we are. And if you are looking to come on and tell your story, or if you've got suggestions, email us, and we will forward all that to Ash because it's you. Thanks to you guys, you are shaping the future of the channel and the guests we have and the direction we go in. Yeah. Fantastic. So thank on that you, note, Sean, we haven't thanked you. Thank you for all these years of fantastic entertainment that you're giving us and learning and helping us all to learn and making me a better presenter. I'll try to lead by example, Andrew. The thing is, no matter what you put on, you've got all these gimmicks, but you can't beat me because I've just got the color on my face. Oh, I'm blue. I could beat that. Can't beat this. No. Can't touch this. No, this is this is different level, mate. This is different level. That's good. You look good. This is different level. If I turned up in fancy dress looking like this, you'd go, right, you've won. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. All right, on a final note then, if you are into serial killers and sex offenders... We are interviewing Kerry Danes. It's coming out Monday night at 6 p.m. on the channel. I've had her on my channel. She was in Monster Mansion with some of the highest profile serial killers in the country, including the Ripper, I believe, Dennis Nilsson. 
among others. Can you can you recite any of the killers or offenders she was in with, Andrew? Um, I can't remember. Uh, 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 no, I, I did have the Black Widow one recently. She was in with Myra Hindley or whatever her name was. And then on Sunday, we're doing a Posh Pete marathon. Posh Pete was in prison in Ecuador. Absolutely brutal. We're starting out with a brand new podcast with him. It's part four. Cool. We're joined by Tug of War. And we're, um, we're, we're joined by Tug of War because there's a bit of a discussion between Jamaica versus the uh, Ecuadorian prison system. And Stephen Graham also joins us on that one. And Jen, so there's about... How is that? One, two, three, four, five of us on that podcast wow. starting out on Sunday. But it's a marathon one because we've added on his other episodes. Yes, Tommy Robinson versus John Sweeney. We are endeavouring to set that one up. Uh, Sweeney's got to survive Ukraine first and come home safely before we can get that one on. So that will be a massive one as well. So, yeah. Just saw a video on Twitter of, of Sweeney dancing on a, a table drunk in Kiev. Oh my goodness! I bet he, he has. Uh, um, there's probably a drought of vodka in Ukraine right now that he is single-handedly responsible for. <laughs> I imagine. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. All right. We salute you. Much love and respect, everybody. Thank you for being with us this evening. Hope to see you next week. First hour is going to be a debate from the list we have just cited. We cannot wait for the hijinks and the energy and the buzz that will create. Much love and respect from Surrey. Take care out there, people. Cheers. Bye, everyone. Bye.